Today's episode is brought to you by Reef Builders, winner of Best of Howls, five years running. Reef Builders is a Tempe, Arizona-based, full-service design-build construction company. What's a design-build company? It means you deal with one company for everything. Reef Builders is able to take your vision and bring it to life by drawing your plans, producing photorealistic, high-resolution 3D renderings of your kitchen, baths, and more, helping you design and pick your finishes, and finally, executing that vision. With their years of building experience and a superior client experience, using tools such as online project management software through their client portal that allows you to see your renovation in real time. Whether you're in town, on vacation, or living in another state, you have access to job progress photos, your build schedule, financials, and much more anywhere in the world. So if you're looking for a complete bath or kitchen renovation, a complete home renovation, a custom home designed and built, or a boutique commercial project built out, Reef Builders can deliver it. Reef Builders, your vision, their experience delivered. Everybody, welcome back to another episode of Make the Difference. Um, we have a special individual here today that's going to tell us his story. Uh, it's a story that uh, at times will be sad and other times will be happy, um, but it's a truly a story of a transformational journey um, from one point to the next. He uh, wanted to come on and talk to us and talk to all of our listeners um, to really be able to help the next person that this could potentially happen to. So I'm not going to fuck up his name because I'm awesome at that. So I'm going to let Stuart fuck up his name. <laughs> so, so Chris is back again for another. So Chris, I want you to introduce There's the guest. There's one thing I've practiced. There. It's his name. Yeah. We fucked so, it up a lot uh, yeah. to start. Yeah, so, <laughs> Don't worry um, about it. Everybody does. Let's, let's hear it. What <laughs> it. It's Rick Booker. Very nice. Yeah. yeah. Well, so uh, it, it helps that the shoemaker has helped me yeah. with that. And, and, yeah. and, and, and he... He told me your name, and then I, I was like, and then he, and then he sent me your contact, and I'm like, wait a minute, that doesn't say Booker, and he goes, oh yeah, it does. That's yeah. exactly what it is. I said, yeah, okay, Chris, I think we're gonna find that that we probably know a lot. Of, well, through the fire service, but through the cycling community, we're probably gonna find that we we yeah. have a lot of common uh, friends. Oh, that's very cool. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. awesome. Yeah. So, um, so that's we who I recommended was shoemaker. Yeah, yeah. So that's what you're suspect already. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Right. Um, yeah. So John actually is a is a good friend of ours mutually, and, sure. and but uh, but Rick and I don't uh, haven't uh, really known each other other than speaking the last few weeks, um, you know, leading up to this. And and actually, John had called me and said, "Hey, I uh, I have somebody who I think would be uh, who has a fantastic message and a fantastic." Uh, and, and I mean fantastic in an interesting way story um, for uh, for the community and f- probably more for firefighters specifically and about a, a journey through a career and with a, a lot of things happening in a career and uh, but in a very positive place now. So um, so it was like, yeah, we can't we could not miss or, you know, not, uh, not take the opportunity to, to talk to you and, and have you on. So, um, yeah, so I can thank John for, for the reintroduction. I think you and I actually met a long time ago when John was on probation at station nine. Holy I think you cow. came by. So that's two, well over 20 years ago. Sure and is. I think that might've been the last time we actually met face to face. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah I um, it. um, 
Did you ever do any TRT stuff? No, uh, oh, no. Okay. I uh, I was I've made it through my whole career without having any special skills. Excellent. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. You're a medic though, right? Yeah, I was. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm yeah. recovering. Yeah. Oh, uh huh. Yeah, <laughs> me too. Me too. Yeah. So uh, so anyway, today's guest is is Rick Booker. Rick was a a firefighter here in the valley, and um, uh, has a story uh, to to talk to us about today. Um, that I think will be helpful um, uh, for those of you that have paid attention to the podcast. It's uh, um, probably very uh, some similar emotion to uh, the emotions we had with Dan Grover in here. So, uh, so we thought that was powerful, and that's important for for firefighters and in uh, in the things about this career that we don't actually pay attention to and we aren't thinking about when we come into it. So, um, yeah, so we just kind of wanted to talk to Rick today. Uh, we'll kind of just get into it. I, we really, our, our formula has tended to be, we just kind of start what, what got you to the fire service and where did that, uh, where did that begin and how did that begin? Wow. Yeah. Like, where are you um, from? Where are you born? Where yeah, did you start? So, Where'd you go to high so school? I, I grew up from, uh, pretty much one to, to 14 in Fort Worth, Texas, um, Kind of had a uh, like an average upper middle class upbringing. Uh, average white guy. Total average <laughs> white guy. Uh, played sports. My dad was an athlete in in school and uh, and afterwards. So he he always pushed me to do you know baseball, football, basketball, soccer, all the kind of mainstream stuff. And uh, unfortunately, he he expected me to kind of intrinsically know how to do all that stuff because he did. Right. Uh, so he was great at pushing me to, uh, toward those team sports, but maybe didn't always do a great job of, of, uh, coaching or passing on his knowledge. Uh, that fact will dovetail into some of my story in a very big way later. Uh, at around probably age 12, 13, I got into BMX racing. Um, so you probably like Clint Gower's episode then if, if yeah, yeah, so, yeah, exactly. <laughs> not, another so, not so smart guy. <laughs> so, yeah. so rode a BMX bike everywhere as a kid, you know, yeah. just like most, most kids do. That's what but, we did. <laughs> yeah. But got into racing and, and, uh, and then I kind of shied away from the team sports and I, I got into band. I was a band guy. Nice. Right? Did you a band I, too? Yeah. Darn straight. What, what instrument? I played drums. Oh, nice. nice. Did nice. anybody ever put uh-huh. their balls on them? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm certain they did. <laughs> what, what instrument but, did you play? <laughs> I, uh, I played alto saxophone in, in uh, concert band and then a stage band. I played baritone sax. Jeez. Nice. And uh, nice. I actually made first chair all-city band in Fort Worth, Texas on, on alto cool. sax. So cool. I, for that year, I was I was the best best kid on alto sax. I anyway, like so, yeah. so music... I, I got away from saxophone, but I, I still play guitar and, and some other stuff. So music's kind of always been a part of my life. Um, but that competition thing, you know, I guess that that was a competition for too sure. yeah, for yeah, band. You know, they're, yep. they're recording you and yeah. you're trying to be the best. Um, I was adopted at four days old. And nine months later, my parents had a daughter of their own. Oh, wow. So my sister and I are, are separated by nine months. And they started me in school a little bit early so that we would not be in the same grade, mm. which was great. We didn't wind up in any of the same classes or anything like that. I uh, wound up having some of the same friends, and, and that was a great source of girlfriends for me as, <laughs> as a kid growing up, right? 
Um, but anyway, at 14, um, my dad uh, lost, his, lost a job in Fort Worth and wound up transferring here to work for Motorola uh, in South Scottsdale. And uh, it was about seven or eight months later that, that the rest of the family was able to move out because we sold the house. Mm-hmm. Um, at the big plant there on Hayden? Exactly. Okay. Yeah, Hayden McDowell. Yeah. The polluter. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yeah, he, so he worked there, and, and uh, eventually that turned into General Dynamics, and mm-hmm. he, he retired from General Dynamics when he was 65. Smart guy. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that team sport thing kind of took a back seat, and cycling took a front seat. And part of the way that that happened was during that seven months that I lived in Fort Worth, taking care of the house – and mom and sister kind of being the man of the house while he was here. Uh, the back end of that deal was when we moved out here, he said he was going to buy me a scooter, like a moped. And, you know, I was 14, right? Yeah. That's Coming up on 15. Kind of a cool prospect. It was. Um, but when we moved out here, he said, hey, it's too dangerous to have you riding around on these streets. Um, but I'll buy a bicycle. Buy a new bicycle instead. Because that's safer. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Where were you then? I needed you, Brandon. <laughs> yeah. That's a lot. So, uh, so we go to the bike shop and, uh, and I pick out a road bike. And I rode the freaking wheels off of that thing. Partly, on the, on the one hand, as an escape. Mm-hmm. And partly as kind of an F you to my dad. Like, you welched on the deal. I'm a... I'm, <laughs> I'm gone. Yeah, right. I don't want to be around here. What were you escaping on that bike? Uh, probably mostly family stuff and, and the fact that being uprooted in the middle of your freshman year is rough, man. Oh, we, yeah. I, we, think you know, I, I went to Saguaro High School, and, and we moved here in the, in the start of the second semester. Mm. So what do you have when you, when you live in Texas your whole life? got an accent yeah so my nickname in, in high school for the first couple of years was tex because i had that, that nice. texas drawl yeah could be worse and they love making fun <laughs> of that yeah. but you know the move here was pretty amazing my my schools in in texas were big brick buildings that looked like an institution and saguaro was like outdoors Open almost you know, yeah, yeah, yeah you're yeah. you're walking from one building to the next and, and it's outdoors and there's palm trees and it's beautiful and um, chicks aren't bad to look at. It's just amazing. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Across the street so, from the green belt, the whole yeah. deal. Right. Yeah. Right. So I, yeah, I grew up in McCormick ranch. Okay. And, uh, so yeah, I think that the road bike was the, one of the first things and I, I guess I was doing it on my, on my BMX bike too, looking back. Um, I felt like I always kind of played a backseat to my sister because I was, I was adopted. My, my parents always made a point to, to tell me and remind me, we love you just as much as her. Almost on an unsolicited mm. basis, yeah. which I thought made it a, a little suspect. And right. who knows? I mean, you know, there's, there are a lot of dynamics there in a, in a family with, with adoptees and, and uh, their own children. So, When did they tell you that, that you're adopted? When did they tell me? Yeah, I think I was in about f- fifth grade, okay. pretty early, right? Yeah, I was say, pretty you young. Really probably wouldn't even have known, right? If they didn't tell you that that early. And I think you know, how do you make that decision? When are we going to tell our kid that he's adopted? 
idea. I was just thinking that. I'm like, is there a playbook for that? I don't know. Well, here's what I think. If you wait until they're 20, they're going to say, why the hell didn't you tell me until now? Right. (laughs) Right. If you tell them when they're eight, they're going to basically grow up always having known that. Like, well, yeah, I've known that I was adopted ever since I can really remember. So I think that was maybe the, that was the thought. Yeah, uh, being being upfront, I see some value in that, but I see being hard on a kid. Well, it was very confusing. Yeah. Really confusing. So and this this idea is going to is going to play out also here in this conversation, but because of the fact that I felt like I was kind of in the back seat like I was number 2, that always pushed me mm. to to exceed and to overachieve yeah. and to take on more and to do more. Um, and you see that with 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 siblings that are biological, you know, um, siblings too. One is always trying to outshine the other because for sure, because that, the other one, yeah. And, so I and think some of that can just be based on age. Yeah, you yeah. know, you got yeah. and if you have siblings that are like a year, year and a half apart, yeah, yeah, that younger one's probably going to feel a lot of a lot of competition. Yeah, and and a good friend of mine, um, that relationship played out and still plays out um, into their adulthood. Sure. Of of trying to kind of one up the other one or whatever else. Yeah. So, yeah. That's mm-hmm. that's. A, well, and guess what? I don't I don't talk much to my sister at all uh, now uh, in adulthood. Right. So, uh, we we lost both of our parents over the course of of a few years, several years ago. So we we had some communication then, but we just we we don't have a whole hell of a lot in common. Yeah. And maybe that's an excuse that I that I like to use, but yeah, it just hasn't. Hasn't really been a healthy relationship, really, ever since I moved out. Yeah. Um, but anyway, that that kind of planted the seeds to to go after you know overachieve mm-hmm. um, and kind of be the try and be the best, um, even if I maybe myself didn't believe it. Because some of the successes that I've had, I, not to be shallow, but they almost don't mean a whole lot to me because no. I, I it. Felt like it was just a normal course of action. Yep. Yeah, an expectation right. maybe. Yeah. A personal yeah. expectation, I, was, I guess. Yeah, that yeah. I put on myself, yeah, not right. that anybody else put on mm-hmm. me. Um, I think that's super normal because there's there's time there's there's times in my life I'm with you. It's like whatever, <laughs> right? It's like <laughs> right. And, and and other people think it's it should be bigger than it is, and you're like, yeah, fuck it. Like I actually could have done better. Yeah. And so I'm actually not even that happy with the achievement. And because looking at that now. There are psychologists that, that would say that, that successful people think that way by design. I could, yeah. So they, they think of success just as a as normal operating procedure. Mm-hmm. And if you think about visual, visualization training and, and some of those different things, uh, even the training we do in fire service, we don't train for the fire to not go out mm-hmm. or the patients to not get extricated. You just never think of that. Yeah, right. So it's almost like if you're rock climbing and you're thinking about falling, you're going to fall. Right. But Does that make failure or or the, the the lack of performance or your inability to be successful, do you think that makes that worse? Yeah, you can't have the highs without the lows. Yeah, man. right. Yeah. You know? Yeah, it kind of amplifies so both end of it maybe. It, yeah, it really can. Yeah. 
like Shoemaker and, and I had a conversation. It got it. I said, "This is gonna fuck you up when I tell you this, dude." But I'm like, for guys like us, there is no end. There's only what is next. Yeah, right. And he's yeah. like, "Damn it!" He's like, "You're right." I'm, well, like, you're- <laughs> I'm like, "There's no end, man. There's okay. no end." So, <laughs> I I started with BMX, right? Yeah. And then it went to. Then I had I had some success in BMX. I didn't race a whole lot. Um, Black Mountain had su- uh, out of Black Mountain. No, racing? I actually never raced here. Oh, I, you never raced yeah, here. Oh, okay. Texas. Uh, we went to the track in Scottsdale one time, and I just thought I can't do this forever. Mm. Like there's this is kind of a kid thing, right? And I'm an early teen, thinking kind of down the road. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, that's. Plus, that's everything why. in Texas is so much bigger. Why would you ride, ride <laughs> all the small <laughs> shit in Arizona? Well, my parents <laughs> had to drive me to that track, so that was getting getting mom yeah. and dad to drive me to the track was right, a right. challenge too. But anyway, had had a lot of fun racing BMX. Had success w- in, with music. Uh, moved out here and started riding the road bike mm-hmm. a lot. Um, and I actually started doing uh, two a day football practices for Saguaro. Well, there were days that I couldn't walk because I was doing two days and I was riding my bike. <laughs> and I was finally, I'm like, I, I got to make a decision here. Okay, I, I can't do this. What and year I, was that? This was, this would have been in uh, 87. Yeah, it's where I was taking okay. a beating almost oh, yeah. Every, yeah. every year yeah, back then. Yeah, yeah. they were not the football <laughs> empire that they are now. No, yeah. To uh, get your ass kicked and then go get on the bike. <laughs> yeah. So imagine the amount of balls that it, it required to sit down with my dad and say who was a team sports athlete yeah right and say hey this is killing me uh i don't want to play football anymore i want to ride a bike and he told me i remember him telling me um never in in any of my days when i was competing or when i was an athlete did riding a damn bicycle have anything to do with any of my success and I just kind of, I didn't realize it at the time, but he did nothing but motivate me right then. Yeah. So ride was what I did. There's the, I'm going to do it just to piss you off. Yeah. <laughs> just for spite, right? And then, but there was also something boiling inside, like how, how far can I take this? What mm-hmm. can I do? Mm-hmm. I didn't know anything, you know, I, I knew something about some race over in France. I knew the Olympics happened happened in the summer every four years, but you know, that was about it. But there were people that were right even in '87, mm-hmm. not to the you know the level they are now. There's bikes all over the place now in Scottsdale, but back then there were people that were riding. Absolutely. So I thought, hey man, okay, I'm going to check that out. So I started hanging out at the bike shop, and there were these race flyers on this stuff called paper yeah. that we don't use anymore. Yeah, right. Uh, so I start kind of checking out these things and they're race announcements. So I find a race and I, I write out a check, put it in an envelope with the race announcement, send it check. Yeah. I remember, I remember doing that. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Send it in. And, uh, I got my, got my parents to drive me to, to my first road race, which happened down in Ahwatukee before it was Ahwatukee. And I, I finished okay, like mid-pack, and, and, but I had a hell of a fun time. That was awesome. So that was a non-sanctioned race. It wasn't a, at the time, it was, uh, it was the USCF, United mm-hmm. States Cycling Federation, before it was USA Cycling. Um, so I decided I'm going to do the Tour de Tucson 
which is a 110-mile right. race in Tucson that happens yep. every year. It's one of the largest perimeter cycling events that goes around a major city in the, in the Still country. Still to this day. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I did 110 miles in four hours and 25 minutes. And I rode with people who were younger than me, that were much older than me, that were faster than me, slower than me, every size, shape. And I thought, this is kind of where it's at for me. Mm -hmm. This is this is something I really want to do. Got my USA or USCF at the time racing license and started racing as a junior. So back then, the age categories were uh, 14, 15, I think, or yeah. 15, 16, and then they switched. I remember it, it being two-year spreads. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I won seven races the first year that I raced. And because of kind of what I brought from BMX, which is really just a sprint, I was a hell of a sprinter. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so that, that became my, my forte. So all every race that I ever won in my cycling career was kind of came down to a, a sprint. Right. I, there were a couple of solo breakaways and stuff like that here and there, but I was a sprinter by trade, and uh, I got hooked up with a with a pretty good coach that first year that I raced, and she taught me how to kind of run a training schedule, and then I switched teams to to work with a different coach who had moved from Italy and he taught me racecraft tactics and strategy. Mm -hmm. And that was what I excelled at also. So you take somebody that, that understands how to ride in a race and you know, where, where to be and when to be there and how to work with teammates and all that dynamic with the power to, you know, be able to sprint. I cleaned up. I mean, I, I think, I think I want to like over the, I raced, I raced bicycles, road bikes, and mountain bikes for just over 30 years. Mm -hmm. I never won a mountain bike race, but I think I won Makes over... Makes two of us. Yeah, I think I, <laughs> I, think I won over a, a hundred <laughs> road races. Really. Yeah, yeah. so I had a lot of success on the road. Do you, so, so you probably know that giant midget Brian Axelrod then, right? I do. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah he took a bad fall in, one, in, a, in a race... <laughs> we remember. ...several years ago. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, he was, uh, I think he was racing for a different team. I don't think we were on the same team. I forget how that went. But, mm -hmm. um, yeah, over the over the course of my adolescence, I, I made friends with a lot of people that were older than me, a lot of people that were a hell of a lot smarter than me, um, and from every different kind of background. Yeah, right. Um, anything from public safety to... Uh, you know, doctors, lawyers, blue collar workers. And on Saturday mornings, we'd ride up Pima Road out to Carefree and, and uh, go have breakfast and then ride back. And that whole time, you're talking to all these people and making new friends and all that. So in high school in, at Saguaro, I didn't do anything with band. I didn't do anything with team sports. I just went to school and I raced my bike. And, uh, yeah, the, the things that I learned from racing over those couple of years early on, um, how to, how to train, how to prepare for something, how to take care of your equipment, keep your bicycle clean. If you hear something making noise, fix it to how to, how to train, how to listen to my body if it's hurt or if it's feeling good, 
but also how to interact with people, how to be a good teammate, how to be a leader, how to be a follower, which is probably more important, I think, because you follow first before you ever get to lead. Mm -hmm. So I think good followers eventually make good leaders. Um, That's my problem. (laughs) So I, uh, I took a job at a bike shop and that was, I lied on the job application, told him I was 16. I was was just about ready to turn 15 at the time. And I I rode my bike from McCormick Ranch down to Tempe Bike. Okay. Down in Tempe. University and uh, Ash. No. Ash. Yeah, that's the next one. The big one, right? Yeah. The the large. The old school. It used to have uh, Zendejas' Mexican food restaurant right next to it. Right across the street. Yeah. 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 Yeah, We'd go over there and get peanut butter butter and jelly uh, burritos. (laughs) 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 I didn't know they had that. That's crazy. Yeah. And then the train would go by. Oh, yeah. Those tracks were still rolling. Um, they, they kind of saw something in me and, and the owner of Tempe bike owned several shops around the Valley. Mm-hmm. They were it back in the day. Yeah. Yeah. So when a shop kind of needed a refurb and kind of a new thing, he, he would, he would send me and a couple other guys that he could trust. And we would just, we, there was one shop in, uh, in Tempe called college cycle that we gutted painted it just redesigned it completely and it became a success so then i i uh finally got eh, it was probably the fourth shop of his that i worked at was tempe bike in the pavilions mm, okay at scottsdale pavilions talking stick in the 101 now um one of the guys that worked there worked for phoenix fire and invited me to do a ride along and at the time so this is a couple of years. It's like a year and a half out of high school. I'm going to SCC. I'm taking uh, just just general classes, looking to, to study business because that's what my dad had done. So I figured, well, he did all right. Mm-hmm. We'll do that. So uh, Hugh Evans worked at 27, I think. Mm-hmm. It's over by PV Hospital. Uh, that's 37, 27's on 32nd street and just uh, north of cactus. Yeah. 37 is at 40th street south of Bell. Yeah. I think it was at 37 then. Okay. So I show up. I know the name. I don't know Hugh, but I know the name. Yeah. This was, you know. Yeah. In the late eighties, early Mm -hmm. nineties, uh, early nineties. Um, so yeah. All right. Come do a ride along. So I show up, we go to the grocery store. Uh, he shows me the truck. We run zero calls. <laughs> we make dinner. Oh, shit. We're cleaning up from dinner, and the tones drop for a worker. Uh-huh. So before I know it, we're uh, we're blazing down Thunderbird on the wrong side of the road with lights and siren going. People are pulling out of the way, and Hugh and his his partner, the other backwards guy, are, are putting their gear on, and I'm facing forward, looking through the, the windshield. And the, the federal windup is going, and the air horn. And I'm thinking, well, this is the coolest damn thing I've ever seen. <laughs> I would agree. And I used to love Emergency. Remember Johnny and Roy? Oh, yeah. yeah. So I watched Emergency when I was growing up. And those guys were so damn lucky. They had a hazmat call, a working fire, and like a code save every day. <laughs> every shift. Yeah. Yeah. You guys don't? 
Oh, I'm not saying we don't. So, <laughs> somewhere in the city. Somewhere yeah. in the city, somebody <laughs> does. Yeah. Like, I'm not going to tell you how many calls yeah. I've been on lately. Makes two of us. So we pull into this cul-de-sac, and there's smoke pumping out of the out of the front door of a model home. And Hugh and and his, and his guys disappear in, in there, and I, you know, I couldn't read smoke, but I, I remember it changed drastically so they got water on it turned white and mm-hmm. you know, blew out of the front door and they come walking out and i'm, like, I'm thinking wow okay this is the shit yeah <laughs> i think i i think i just found it right. right i think i just found what i want to do so at the time i was living in an apartment at uh at frank lloyd wright and via linda mm-hmm. so i walk in it's it, it's 606 now but back in the day it was station 19 rural metro so I walk in and uh, basically say, are there any jobs here? And the captain there uh, said, well, are you an EMT? I'm like, nope. Well, you got to be an EMT. All right. Well, I had a motorcycle at the time, hopped on that, rode down to SCC where I was already going to classes and signed up for, for EMT class mm-hmm. that semester. Got an A. Walked back to station nineteen. Hey, I got my my EMT cert. Is there any jobs here? Uh, have you taken any fire science classes? Nope. <laughs> All right, back to SCC. Well, everything was full, and they only offered three per semester at that time. It was full except for one class, and that was fire hydraulics and apparatus. Okay, that's a little advanced for. For a brand new guy. Yeah, not a, I'm not <laughs> right. even in the fire service yet. Direct yeah. pressure is the is your skill at that yeah, point. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So I'm learning how to pump a truck and set pressures and, and all that. So get an A. Go back to the station. Hey, I'm got my EMT cert, and this was and that same captain had told me the first two visits that I needed to go. And so I I walk in there, and there's a different captain this time. So hey, I got my uh, got my EMT cert and some fire science, like the other officer told me to do. Are there any jobs here? And Don Maddox was the captain there, and he said, "Yep, I just took over the reserve program here in Central Scottsdale, and, and uh, I've got open spots. Why don't you show up Tuesday night?" Okay. So I that was it. So I come back Tuesday night. And there's a group of about five or six reserves, red shirts, and they're rolling hose in the front apron. So somebody hands me a helmet and their gloves and says, here, you try it. And it's just a double donut, inch and three quarter, right? So I take it and they kind of, a couple guys could do it. A couple guys were really struggling. Some of them let go of the whole thing, you know, threw it. So I'd been watching and I, so I grabbed it and that first roll paid out perfectly and then I thought you know again I thought oh shit I, I think I can do this so of course Captain Maddox was watching and he said okay um, come back in two days because there was just a B shift in Scottsdale at the time AB said uh, come back Thursday and uh, we'll get you set up for your drug test and background and and uniform all right so that was how I got hired <laughs> as, oh, nice. as a reserve mm-hmm. with rural at the time. 
So sounds a lot like how I got hired in Phoenix. Breathe on this mirror. You're good. Come on. <laughs> yeah. 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 It was different, man. It was it, the the fire service itself was different, but well, um, and so rural at the time, they have Scottsdale. They have most of the county and mm-hmm. uh, I'll call it the unincorporated, I guess, parts of right. and, and some of the incorporated parts of the valley yeah. and much, you know, much bigger footprint than they have right now, obviously. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. So Ed, did you spend most of your time in Scottsdale? Spent all of it in Scottsdale, okay. with the exception of uh, a little bit of time in Rio Verde, a couple months. They had a guy that was out, mm-hmm. so I, I filled in out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I never worked really in the county or anything. Nice. Few few ships up up, up in um, Cave Creek, uh, but yeah, mostly Scottsdale the whole time. Right. You know, Dark Crater. <laughs> I do. The fart. Yeah, I used to yeah. teach. I used to teach with Dart. All right. Yeah, yeah. he's still alive. Uh, as far as I know, yeah. Yeah, he's yeah. got to be close to seventy right now. Yeah, he retired a long time ago. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, I worked for, worked for rural mm-hmm. as a reserve, and you have to suffer, man. You you have to want it to, <laughs> yeah. to get hired full time. And uh, there are guys that still don't don't kind of count reserve time as your time in the fire service. And that's bullshit because I worked harder and more hours ever. Oh, <laughs> you know, with less resources. Yeah, yeah. So. <clears throat> Being a reserve, you you know, like I said, you really gotta want it. And is it hourly? Is the pay uh, how's the pay different than the full time guys? I got paid three twenty five an hour. Some of you get paid by the call started. too, right? Yeah, if you did a ride along, uh, you got paid for an hour per call, unless the call was over an hour, and then you got paid however long the call okay. was. But yeah, it's one hour increments. So at the time, I was spinning wrenches at a bike shop. I was slinging tacos at Ajo Owls. <laughs> I was a food server. Yeah. I was hustling, right? Because yeah. I'd moved out of moved out of the house. Or it was. Yeah, uh, this one was Seventieth and Shea. Okay, okay. Yeah, so I'd moved out of the house. I'd I'd rent to pay, I had bills, so um, and and I bought a motorcycle for transportation because um, it was cheap, mm-hmm. good gas mileage, and I figured out how to carry a big ass black duffel bag with my turnouts and everything (laughs) strapped across the back of that motorcycle. So I did ride alongs until I got shift qualified and I started working shifts. And one, one of the good things about rural and there aren't a whole lot, but they provided a crap load of education if you wanted it. Mm. So one of the things that I got interested in and realized that I could make some money at was wildland firefighting. Right. So I took a 130, uh, 13190 class, basic uh, firefighting, fire weather. And having loved the outdoors my whole life, I thought, well, okay, here's another thing. So I keep discovering these things like, wow, I want to do that. I want to do that. I want to do that. So I took every single fire, uh, wildland fire class that, that they offered and before I knew it, I was a squad boss on a hand crew. Then I was a crew boss qualified. Mm-hmm. Then I was engine boss qualified. And I was going to these fed fires and making more money than I could in town doing ride-alongs. Yeah, right. Um, so did that for... That you're working for it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Not a whole lot of time at home. Yeah. Um, so that was my first wildland season. My second and third wildland seasons, I, I um, worked for Tano. That was a seasonal for, okay. for them on, on one of their engines. Got a bunch more experience with, with the Forest Service there. Um, and you get a lot of street crud. 
having worked a fire season on a on a forest service engine when you come back sure so that that proved really useful we used to have a lot of wildland urban interface fires hmm. in the valley a hell of a lot more than we than we do now right um, we may see the resurgence this resurgence this year oh you know it's always going to be the worst fire season yeah ever. <laughs> that's that's very true saying. very true <laughs> uh what i will say is i was on the rio fire which that oh, was yeah. the biggest yeah right the biggest wildland fire that, that the valley's ever had spent uh three four days on that got burned over oh wow yeah um that was that was exciting where at where were you guys at uh, we were doing structure protection within probably the first three hours of it starting mm-hmm. um, at Rio Verde Drive in about 128th. Yeah. yeah. I think it was 128th Street. There's a little enclave of houses there. Mm-hmm. Wind shift, and we're standing on a dirt road, and we had to hit the deck because yeah. it just it came right over the top of us. Didn't get hurt, but took in a whole lot of smoke. Um course when they they took us back to med to check our vitals and everything i i knew the medic that was checking my vitals and i I looked him in the eyes and i said i'm fine right 120 over 80 right yeah (laughs) you got it all right cool my heart rate is not 160 right now is it yeah because i i needed the money number one but it was also a big fire you know when you're a firefighter that's what you want to do you you want want to fight fire you want to practice your your skills you want to practice your trade uh, so I got, you know, got to, got to work that. Anyway, um, full-time hiring opportunities came around here and there. Unfortunately, I, I didn't uh, hang out with the right battalion chiefs. Uh, and do the right stuff off duty with with guys. So I wound up. I was a reserve for three years. Yeah. Um, which is kind of on the long end. You know, usually people say f this by that point. Um, but I, I soldiered on and got into a full-time academy, finished first, um, learned eh, learned more about teamwork, I think, and leadership there than I, than I really did about fire science itself. Because right. by this point, I'd been taking fire science classes for just over three years. And it had all this all this time. I've been working shifts already. Really, I worked shift, shifts for a couple of years before I got full time. Um, so yeah, that that academy was more of a learning experience with how to how to lead and how to follow. It was, it was how old were you? Pretty interesting. Uh, let's see. I was twenty when I when I got hired. So I, I would have been coming up on twenty four years old. Still a pretty young man. Yeah, for sure, mm-hmm. for sure. And I had no idea what I was in for. Zero. Um, you know, it goes back to that that excitement of of hearing the tones drop and seeing the guys run out to the bay when I was doing that ride along, and going down the wrong side of the road, down Thunderbird, going, "Holy shit, this is it! This is what this is what I want to do." Um, but you have no idea what what you're in for. Um, and the, the sad thing is that nobody at that point can tell you what you're in for and, and make you listen or make you really believe. Some of us wouldn't listen anyway. (laughs) Well, but the perspective, right? Because you just, you, you may hear if somebody takes the opportunity or the time to actually say something to you like that, 
can you actually, as a new firefighter, can you actually even understand it? You know, nope. can you, the perspective of, oh, okay, yeah, what, yeah, I, yeah. I got it, yeah, it'll, yeah so it'll be bad. Tell me if you've heard this saying, this phrase, life for a firefighter holds a flavor that the protected will never know. Uh, I have not heard it yeah, in those either. words, but mm-hmm. I have heard a, a, a very similar sentiment. Sure. Yeah. So until you until you do it, there is no way to explain it. It's like most things, I think, in life. Yeah, like like yeah. anything military-wise, stuff like that. Right. A lot of stuff like until you walk in those shoes, you're never yeah. going to know. Yeah. It's, it's, and we know what we see on TV or what we read on social media, but... Yeah, until you until you actually start experiencing these things, and at that point, when I was in my full time academy, I'd been burned over in that brush fire. Mm-hmm. You know, so I had a close call already. Um, we were definitely in the wrong place at the right at the right time yeah, <laughs> for yeah. that to happen. Um, but yeah, so that some of that perspective was just starting to you know like okay, this is serious. Mm-hmm. Um. So I come out of my full-time academy, and this is how I know Shoemaker. We used to climb rock together. That's what you're saying. Right? Yeah. yeah. So, so matter of fact, he gave you credit. He said he taught me how to climb. So That's cool. Yeah, that's, yeah. What, that's what he said. So go back for a second. My dad never taught me the rules to football, really, and I sucked at it. Baseball, a little bit, but nah, not great. That experience spurred in me a desire to not only master some things, but once I do master them, I want to pass them on to everybody I know. So because they they give me such pleasure, like climb or like rock climbing, God, so fun! It's amazing what you can get out of that, and uh, yeah, passed it on to John. And I'm sure. And you know what? Here's what John did. I helped him put together a climbing program at the Boulders Resort. Right, yep. So he passed it on also to those resort guests that would come out and climb on top rope. Right. So that's kind of... Yeah, and the the other guides that, that, you know, ultimately ended up working there. For sure. Yeah. For sure. So, I mean, I'm not taking credit for the Boulders, (laughs) you know, for the climbing program back then, but but I think just in life, that's something that that has... um, kind of been a constant for me when I when I find something that I'm that I feel like I'm good at and I you're not going to meet a more humble guy I don't like to I, I don't brag about stuff I had I'm here to share some crazy experiences in my life that I've uh, with you um but yeah I don't I don't brag but when I get good at something I like to pass that on mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. so anyway um so yeah John and I climbed back in the Back in the '90s, together. Um, where were we going with that? Well, yeah, we're talking about path. It, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, um, having been a rock climber pretty much forever, um, the department realized, oh, you'd probably be good at technical rescue because you got all this rope experience. Well, as a reserve, I had been going to TRT drills with those guys, and they weren't part of the regional training program right, at yeah. that point they did their own thing but if you signed up for a class you were probably if if you were accepted to it you you were going to get qualified to do something so that was kind of the carrot you know that's that's getting dangled right 
So when um, trench awareness class came up, signed up for it, took it as a reserve. I wasn't even full-time yet. They let me in. Swift water rescue awareness, boom, done it. Okay, cool. Got that before I was even full-time. Um, rope one and two, you know, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. You could just sign up and it was there for the taking. So I was pretty, I had a pretty robust TRT knowledge when I came out of the academy and they put me at the TRT station as a booter. So where was that at? At the time it was station 15, which is now 607 at 130th and Violinda. Okay. Yeah. So out there. Uh Okay. So I spent my whole career with the exception of the last couple years, which we can talk about as a rescue tech. Mm -hmm. And back then, you know, you mentioned the amount of, of, mileage that rural protected in the valley well the trt team protected that also so we would respond to stuff in scottsdale but we would go to all the county areas also right so as a trt company we were running our asses off and it was great because it was like it it was pretty crazy stuff Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. all the same stuff that's happening now um the guy that started the TRT team with Rural Metro is Tim Cooper. And he's, he's one of the godfathers of technical rescue in the Valley. Mm-hmm. So when he got qualified to, to start doing the stuff, that was, that was when all the other departments, with, even the Phoenix guys, mm-hmm. were, were sending people to get, get qualified to, to train. And he was one of those people. So... Uh, I wound up working with Tim off and on, more on than off, for about 20 years. Um, so I'm I'm working under kind of the he was the man. Yeah, the guy. Right. Yeah. yeah. So got a, got a ton of great experience from him, and uh, and we ran some really shitty calls. Um, Stuff that from the standpoint of the the situation and the incident was it was challenging and, and shitty or uh, uh, yeah or yeah just kind of totally that. the circumstances yeah so w- with loss of life yeah, say, or yeah. Yeah. and or with the outcome yeah, right probably, yeah, yeah. It, it, it wasn't in, an internal internally shitty or you know performance or resources it was really what was actually happening. You right know what's there. funny is the, with regard to the resources thing, because uh-huh. we could, in, in 05, Scott, the city of Scott still took over its own fire department. Yep. Rural Metro was gone. And we become, we became part of the automatic aid system. I was and excited. Came, I lived in Scottsdale. I still do, but I lived it there at the time. Yeah. We, we went to four person staffing. We, you know, just, it, it was a monumental shift sure. in the amount of resources available. So, Working for rural, we learned to do more with less oh, yeah. equipment, less guys. I've heard that somewhere before lately. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Much higher risk. Mm-hmm. We, you know, and we we followed the risk management profile. Don't get me wrong, but there, but we were willing to do some cowboy shit sometimes if we had to. Right, and it worked out. Mm-hmm. Amazingly, we all made it out of that. Right, it was like all of us riding riding bikes with no helmets when we were kids, you know, skateboarding, all that. So, uh, yeah, we, I mean, I could go down a list of, of crazy calls, but 
you know, there, there was stuff that, that had a, a big impact on me. How so? Like what impact? Like emotionally or? Emotionally and physically. I, there were, there were calls that I got hurt on. I, I've, I mean, I've, I've had my, my feet crushed in an aerial ladder. I've uh, had a, a roof collapse on my head with concussion, I, you know, rolled ankles on TRT calls, just the, you know, the stuff right. mm-hmm. that happens. Um, but from a mental standpoint, um, you've got all those kind of bad calls that you run over the course of a month where you have, you might have a bad outcome, but it's not, there's not a huge impact, right? So I don't know, somebody has a heart attack and they, you know, they're having chest pain, so they get nitro and all that and they get to the hospital and, and okay, see you later those kind of calls or code here and there that you may save, but probably won't yeah, right. statistically. Um, so you have all those and then once in a great while, hopefully it's a great while you have one that just smacks you across the face. So you remember like video game punch out mm-hmm. body blow, body yeah, blow, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. The body blows are, are those calls like, mm-hmm. God dang it. We were up all night again. Boom. It's like you're getting punched in the gut. Uh, Guy, uh, guy was having a heart attack. His wife was just beside herself. Boom, punch in the gut. And then you lose three Boy Scouts in a Swiftwater rescue call where you wind up so hypothermic that you stop shivering because the rain that was falling slowed down because it turned into snow. Hmm. Uh, and your lips turned blue. And a Finally, a battalion chief tells you to get in the ambo and get warmed up when you still want to keep looking for the three people that you didn't find. Yeah, right. Um, so that's the slap across the face. So thing, little things like that happen over the course of my 27 years in the fire service, right? And um, Scottsdale takes over. We become part of the automatic aid system, and we become part of the regional uh, training consortium for, for HAZMAT and TRT. So I expressed an interest in, in uh, teaching. And Tim was kind of one of the lead instructors and, and uh, said, all right, let's do it. So I started as an assistant instructor teaching regional in 05. And then uh, over the course of a couple of years, I, I had taught every TRT discipline. Mm-hmm. So t- for those listening, TRT disciplines include things like rope rescue, uh, uh, trench rescue, confined space, swift water rescue, basically anything that a normal fire truck would pull up to and go, we don't know what to do. Yeah. We, Call the we're TRT not a, guys. We're not equipped for that. Yeah. Yep. So my station did all of that in addition to having a normal fire truck or there were years where we had a ladder truck and we were doing ladder ops and, and TRT. Um, so we, we kind of, my career involved being a normal quote, normal firefighter mm-hmm. and a rescue tech. So it's kind of an elevated level of, of, uh, yeah, it's definitely an work. added, added, uh, skill level and responsibility. Sure. Yeah. So by, by the time 05 rolls around, I feel like, Hey, I think I'm getting kind of good at this. I think it's time to pass this on to, to other people. I think I can, there's something I can offer. Plus, we're doing the same damn drills every year. 
You know, yeah, the right. con space drill is in the same place every year. Same same scenario. Hey, hey, is the mannequin halfway down the tunnel again? All right. You know exactly what to do and all that. So I thought, man, I can I can um, use some of my creativity and my motivation to to change the way training is de- delivered and mm-hmm. kind of change the, the mentality behind it. Well, that's what I set about doing after uh, teaching regional as an assistant instructor for a few years. Then I, I started doing lead instructor stuff and um, super comfortable working at height. So anytime tower rescue came around, I signed up to, to teach that. Um, uh, anything high angle, uh, team-based pickoffs, stuff like that in the, in the vertical realm, but then also con space. And the reason I like con space was because it's the most complex, crazy, effed up call that you can possibly run if it's a real one, right? There's, there's not only technical rescue involved, but EMS, hazmat, maybe fire. Just the, there's so much that goes into that type of a call. So I started putting these con space evolutions together every year for regional and and then i did a few at the um for the end of the year scenarios and that went great people love the training um kind of love the 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 fresh application of some stuff and uh one of the one of the other things that i did throughout my career was a lot of helicopter ops Mm -hmm. so when we were still with rural metro we were utilizing uh, MCSO, the sheriff's office helicopter, and then we started using DPS. DPS, yeah. So, you want to talk about some cowboy stuff? The Very MCSO pilots yeah. were amazing. Yeah, they were they were all Vietnam era <laughs> vets, and flying a helicopter to them was like putting on a pair of shoes. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was just and not getting shot at. Like right. that shit's easy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this all day long. Yeah. So. <laughs> We always had a helicopter availability, and we, and then in 05, we started training with Phoenix also. Mm-hmm. And I was actually on a call. I did a, I did a, um, I did a long line off of Troon Mountain in 05, I think. And Phoenix BCs and 957 showed up, and we used DPS to do it. And those guys and that's said, That's always been a problem for us. Yeah. Yeah. They said, Hey, you've got to use Phoenix now. So we were like, well, train us. Yeah, right. So there was actually a period of time where we we were training with three different helicopter agencies. Mm. So we literally had a helo ops drill like every other week. So there was nobody more dialed in with with helicopters, right? So by this time, um, shortly into my career, I, I went to medic school because I wanted to be be able to do more on a on a call. Mm-hmm. Sorry, Brandon. Okay. <laughs> of, just so, get the gurney. <laughs> somebody has to do it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but the other side of that that motivated me was if I'm a medic and I'm a TRT medic, now I can really do cool shit. Yeah. Because if somebody's going to fly in and take care of a patient, is it going to be ALS or BLS? Yeah. It's going to be a medic. Mm-hmm. So that was part of the motivation. And it paid off, man. I, I flew a lot of helo rescues. Um, and then when when uh, we we started working with, with Fiber 10 exclusively, um, you know, guys like Jeff Zentech and, and those guys yep. of that era um, 
we formed a really good working relationship and people like him immediately recognized the amount of experience and comfort that we had with working around a helicopter. Cause when, when you yeah, walk that matters up, to those, yeah, guys. when you walk under that spinning rotor, guys lose their freaking minds. Yeah. Um, and I always, I always knew that that was the most dangerous thing that I would ever do in the fire service is, is work with that helicopter. Um, something that really shouldn't actually be in the air. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's not it, mm-hmm. all those moving parts are trying mm-hmm. to come apart. Um, but it also gave me some of the, some of the most amazing experiences, you know, some of the, the, the most significant calls that I, that I remember were, um, with the helicopter. So, um, anyway, while all that cool shit is happening, the body blows are still coming and the knockout punches are still coming. We, you know, you, you lose a patient out on a trail cause you're trying to work a code in the middle of nowhere. Um, yeah, you name it. Everybody, do you guys have kind of your, your hop, your, your calls that trigger you like a call type that triggers you? Uh, that triggers different things. Yeah. Something that's really hard, like emotionally kind of F's you up. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. And it actually, for me, it's, it's evolved over, over my career. Yeah. Like once I had kids, calls with kids became much more difficult yeah. and I do not recall them being while well, they weren't you know they weren't great but I don't recall them being as difficult as sure. they are yeah. in, in present day same Brandon yeah um I'd like to say I mean the kids are always the toughest calls for me but I kind of have a weird um I don't even know how to explain it like um I'm 100% okay with the loss of life if I've done everything in my powers to be able to help it when it's outside of my boundaries i don't it doesn't seem to stay with me um i don't know where that comes from my time in the military or my time with my sports or my dad or stuff like that but um i mean i i have i remember we had a pretty rough one or whatever and i'll go back to the station and go i'll be asleep in five minutes <laughs> everybody's up like for yeah. like the all night and i'm and i like i'm asleep i just as long as i know i've given everything i possibly can right because i guess at the end of the day i know i can't I can't alter the outcome past my skills. So I, so they just kind of like, like, I don't know. And I've always been that way, no matter what situation I'm in, whether it be athletically or in a relationship or something like that. If I know that I've given everything I possibly can to that situation, I'm okay walking away from it without, you know, too much baggage. You, you always carry something, but it doesn't, it, 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 it hasn't snuck up on me yet. I'm not saying that it's, you know, that it won't, but it hasn't got me yet. Yeah. So... For me, there's a, there's a couple. Um, opiate overdoses are are tough. I don't I don't have any kids, so of, of my own. So the the peds call, I I think probably ninety percent of the fire service would agree mm-hmm. a, a peds yep. call is, is the worst for them. Uh, for me, it's it's opiate overdoses, and uh, I spent some some time in my life with somebody that that had an opiate problem. Mm. Um, and then, Al- do, do you think? The, uh, do you remember having a similar reaction prior to uh, that? You know, not the experience. Even. No, okay. not even. Got it. Because my, the thought that that w- that would that would creep into my head was, am I going to go home in the morning and find that? Yeah, yeah. right. So as soon as it became personal to you. Yeah. 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 yeah for sure. 
And then the next one, uh, same thing, became personal al- Alzheimer's patients. So I lost my mom to, to she, had, she wound up dying of breast cancer, but she had Alzheimer's for years before that. Wow. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there came a time when, when she didn't recognize my dad and he would, he would call me, Hey, get over here. You know, that kind of, mm-hmm. you know, level of, of Alzheimer's. And then she, she wound up in a nursing home for the, for the last, uh, four or five years of her life. Um, but yeah, after that, man, Alzheimer's calls suck. Hate this. But I'll tell you what, I got, I freaking mastered both of those calls. Sure. I couldn't even. I saved more opiate overdoses than I than I can even remember. Tons of them. I've probably saved too many. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sure. should have been saved. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and when and I, there came a time in my career where I where I started seeing people kind of struggle with Alzheimer's patients. They didn't know how to how to deal with them. Mm. Like they would keep asking them the same question over and over again. <laughs> yeah, it becomes super frustrated. Yes. Why isn't this person responding? Yeah. Well, how and I, would, else I would love to say things like, hey, do you feel like this patient's getting the best of you right now? Yeah. Okay. Stand, hey, watch, just watch this. Yeah. And I, riding back to the station in the truck with the headsets on, I would, I would say, guys, when, when we have an Alzheimer's call, you have to treat it like a PEDS call because a two-year-old cannot tell you what's wrong. Yeah. A two-year-old cannot tell you that their stomach hurts. Not with words, but they'll be crying and holding their belly maybe. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So switch that. I know, you know, I know it's hard. You're looking at a 65-year-old man and you're trying to get him to talk, but he's not. Just, you know, just switch it up. Yeah, right. Um, anyway, I, so I, when, when I had those experiences in my life, I figured, okay, there's got to be something that I can turn around, like I can turn this around and make make good out of it. Um, I started precepting medic students, mm-hmm. and I started doing that early on. That was, that was well before we we went to to Scottsdale, so it was probably early 2000s, I guess, that I started precepting medics. And same thing, I've I've had more medic students come come through my hands than I can even remember, but passing on my experiences and, and kind of the mentality of, you know, how you kind of deal with things. So would you say that, Chris, there's two types of medics, street medics and book medics? Yeah. Um, I would, yeah, I, I, I absolutely, I'm trying to, uh, yes, there definitely is a difference in the uh, application. And I, I'm actually thinking there's, there's firefighters that fit that. There's paramedics sure. that fit that. There's probably technicians and you know hazmat and technical rescue technicians that and fit doctors. that. Yeah, yeah. doctors <laughs> and yeah, just society. Yeah. Everybody. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think that's probably a pretty fair connection yeah. between I, the two. I always tried to balance myself 50-50. Mm-hmm. And the the further away you get from medic school, the worse you get with <laughs> with being a book medic. Oh, 100 percent. And you rely more on your street smarts. Yeah. So. You know, probably those last five medic students that I precepted, it was it was pretty streety. Like I was, yeah. <laughs> I had to review stuff if I was if I was going to put them through a, a scenario where they were going to you know have to do a bunch of different stuff. But but they need that education. Yes, so that, that and that's what you don't get in school, right? Yeah. I thought it was just like either transport or not transport or IV or own or, or no IV. Yeah, that those are the biggest decisions you make. <laughs> yeah, yeah. they are <laughs> pretty much it. Right. <laughs> I I always told them, look, you, this is. 
this is a really good opportunity for you to shape your craft. You have all these examples, and and the 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 medic examples are not all good. Some of them are are pretty bad, yeah. and those pretty bad ones can be some of the 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 strongest learning experience. Yeah, no man's worthless. You can always serve as a bad example. There you go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's so, my credo. Yeah. <laughs> so I always I always try to get those those medic students to to shape themselves behind you know kind of in the form of people that they looked up to sure and they have to you have to develop your own style and i did that myself yeah as a medic and then later so later on um i got qualified as a, a canact engineer mm-hmm. and a canact captain so i could do any job on the truck and i was a medic so people start saying, dude, you should promote, you should promote. Well, I'm not a doctor, but if I promoted, I'm probably never riding around on a helicopter again because I won't get back to TRT. Yeah. You're going to be a supervisor yeah. and yeah. you got to start supervising stuff. Exactly. And that's not necessarily so, doing. No, yeah. it's not. And that, so th- at that point, the action outweighed the promotion. And I always knew, hey, you know what? I'm just going to bust ass with some overtime and teach regional, and I'll make as much as a captain medic. Oh, yeah. Which I did. I had to work for it. Uh, yeah. But I, I got all this experience, and I could, I could do anything, right? It felt like Superman. So um, things are going swimmingly, and then... Uh, Any, so uh, I, don't, I don't mean to interrupt you, but so to this point in, the, in your career... We've talked professionally. You know, we started personally, and now we're professionally. How was what? What was going on personally in that time? Probably a sim a similar arc. Tons. Okay. Yeah. And I'm glad you brought me back to this because I would have glazed over it. Um, I'm racing bicycles um, at the highest level. The Cat one on the mountain bike. Cat two on the road bike. Mm-hmm. Um. Started doing some of the, the long distance mountain bike races, some twelve hour stuff. Yeah, right. I did Leadville. Nice. Um, I actually got married during Leadville. Leadville is a hundred hundred mile uh, hundred mile. mile race. It's um, just a hundred mile. It's fifty miles out and back. It's really not that. It hard. got right. famous yeah. for for the running side of it, and then they yeah. introduced the mountain bike side of it. But yeah. would you get a belt buckle, some like crazy ass belt buckle? Yeah, under nine hours, it's a belt buckle. Yeah, just for finishing the thing. It's yeah. like that. You are. It starts at above ten thousand feet altitude. Yeah, and it's just a long and ass, stays there. Yeah, long, exactly. Long ass grinding yeah. fucking ride. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Shoemaker and I got got in. He raced. I didn't because I stayed here and worked. Uh, you were you, you did you're the smart one. Yeah, yeah you were better <laughs> off. Yeah, you're the smart. He one. got passed by Lance though. Yeah, how, how badly. So did everybody. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That year he got passed by. Lance. Like he was standing still. Well, no, on the out and back part. Okay. Uh, where they yeah. were. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I did Leadville, um, and then you know more <coughs> bicycle racing success. Yep. Um. Rewind back to 03, and one weekend I had been racing out in uh, Lake Havasu, and then Pinnacle Peak Park opened up mm-hmm. in Scottsdale. So that was a climbing area that Shoemaker and I grew up climbing yes. you know, every week. And then uh, homeowners got it shut down, and the city 
wound up uh, kind of splitting the land and they they ruined the it. best mountain bike course uh, in the state of Arizona. Yes, they did. Really? Yeah, no more cactus cup. 100%. Wow. So go up there and climb the uh, one of the first weekday mornings that Pinnacle Peak is open. And I take a 12-foot fall and land in a seated position on a boulder oh. and fracture L3 and L4. Oh, my God, that feel. Uh, it mm. felt pretty interesting when my legs started going numb. Yeah. No yeah. Um, yeah, that was brutal. Um, and I, I got flown off of Pinnacle Peak under DPS Ranger 41. So I got long-lined uh-huh. for a change. Right. Um, Recovered fine. Uh, I was out of work for about three months. I think they they said I should have been out for six. Yeah, I was going to say, the three months sounds short to me for that injury. Yeah. Well, I was super fit because I had just, I'd I'd been killing it that season too. I'd just raced the weekend before. So I was like peak fitness. So recovered from that, went back to work. Was the fall. Accidental or overconfidence? My wife at the time, um, who was also a firefighter. Scottsdale firefighter? Yes. Okay. Had me on belay. So we were tied together with rope. She was holding it. I got about uh, 10 feet up a really wide crack. And I didn't have any gear that was wide enough to put in there to protect me, to clip the rope in. So she yelled, hey, you better get some gear in. So I, I remember I took the, the biggest cam off of my harness that I had, and I held it up in that crack, and I, I shook it back and <laughs> forth. Clang, 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 <laughs> clang, and looked down. That's not good. I got nothing. <laughs> so I looked up, and I saw a place that, that I could get some gear in. It was maybe no more than like three feet higher. So I figured, okay, I'm going to go for it. Well within my climbing ability. I think it was like a five seven. Um, my feet are out on one side of the rock. My hands are are holding on to the other side of the rock, and my feet slipped. So now, if I hadn't have said, "Here, look, at, look at this cam. It's too small," and I just kept climbing instead of wasting that time and effort mm-hmm. to say. I can't get any gear in. I look, probably would have been okay. Look, I know uh, what the fuck I'm doing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I would have made it. So that fall, and I didn't realize at the time, uh, took my life down a very interesting road, and that was motorcycle road racing. Now, everybody's going, how the... That's an interesting connection. I'm not seeing it yet. (laughs) So I had a motorcycle, right? And in that three months where I'm sitting at home with a back brace on doing nothing, the internet had kind of just come around and I found a, a thing called the Phoenix Sport Bike Club. And they they meet every Saturday at uh, the car show out at the pavilions. Mm-hmm. So to be part of the club, you have to go out there and kind of show up and, and then they open up the, the forum online, chat forum. So... That's how you find out where they're riding and, and events and all that. So about two months into a broken back, I've got this back brace that goes from my clavicle down to my, my pelvis. I barely throw a leg over my, my Honda Superhawk, and I ride out to the pavilions and introduce myself. 
And they, they say, okay, we'll, we'll uh, open up the forum to you. This looks like a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> let's yeah. Get, let's think it's just crazy <laughs> enough to ride with yeah. us. Let's give the dude an eternal show access yeah. to this shit. This, is, this sounds like a great idea. The Sign him off. Right. <laughs> the cool thing about those guys at the time was they were the only group of sport bikers that were really responsible. They required you to have full gear on, helmet, gloves, totally you know, all your stuff. <laughs> yeah. So I started riding with them a little bit, and then things started getting out of control in the canyons. Oh, we sure. were riding really fast. I had a CBR 900RR. Okay. That's what I rode in college. Where, yeah. uh, <laughs> where, where are you talking about? I'm talking uh, the, back way, the back way into Prescott up okay. uh, Yarnell oh, okay. Hill, yeah, yeah, yeah. 130 miles an hour, allegedly, up Yarnell Hill yeah, in, uh-huh. a gr- in a group yeah. of yeah. guys. Uh, Bartlett Lake, Canyon Lake. Okay. Um, all those places, and, and there were a couple guys that had some mishaps. For sure. So we decided, what this could is go stupid. Wrong? A bunch of amateurs yeah. on sport bikes. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> let's do a track day. At Firebird? The first one we did was at Firebird. Okay. So you we don't go put it up there. I've been to a couple of super bike races there. Yeah. Those guys, whew, Yeah. The yeah. pros are amazing. Right before I broke my back, I had gotten qualified as a motorcycle safety foundation rider coach with a company called Team Arizona. So Team Arizona is somebody you go to when you want to learn how to ride a motorcycle on on the street. And in return for that class, you don't have to take your your driver's test when you get your motorcycle license. And you get a deal on your insurance. So I had done all those things before I bought my first motorcycle. I actually went to those guys for for motorcycle training, took all their classes. Then they invited me to come out to a track day. Then they invited me to teach. What bike were you on? You weren't on the street hawk, right? Uh, I did my, my first track day was on a 99 Honda super hawk. Okay. Yeah. Um, so started doing track days. We brought maybe 20 people from the club. And um, that became a regular thing for, for a couple of years. Oh, I'm sure. Then somebody said, hey, um, you're instructing in the intermediate group, but you're faster than the guys in the advanced group. Have you ever thought about racing? And I said, no, I'm getting free track time, man. You know, I'll just I'll keep teaching. And they're like, eh, you really should start thinking about racing. And I'm doing. I'm still racing my road bike, my bicycle. So I thought, all right, I'm going to gather the club. Anybody that wants to get a, a racing license, we're going to take over that race clinic for the month. So about 12 of us show up. We get our racing licenses. We do our first race, and uh, you're licensed as a as an amateur. I won a Superbike Championship my first year racing as an amateur on a, uh, a GSX-R750. Got my, my expert license, and I got invited to start teaching the new racers clinic for Road Race Southwest. So when, now, when people want to come and race a motorcycle on the track, they come through the class. So I was the insist, assistant instructor for that for, for a year then they wanted me to take it over the next year. So I did. I rewrote the curriculum. And now I have this massive pool of 
sport bikers in the valley that I can bring into my clinic, bring into the racing school, bring into the scene. And uh, so I did that. Um, the following year, I got my AMA Pro license and started getting some, some support from uh, the Yamaha factory, Dunlop Tires, uh, VP Race Fuel. Here's the funny thing. When you, when you think, oh, I, I got support. I got, you know, 10 sets of tires. I'm going to save money. <laughs> you will find other things, like a new trailer right. to spend your money oh, on, right. right? Yeah, just go someplace else. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Just the dudes at the very top are crushing it. Yeah. Yeah. So... The Go, the very first GoPro Hero camera had come out. One of my sponsors brought it to me and said, "Hey, you should try this. Mount it to your bike. We'd love to see you race." So I, I video some races, and I realized, holy shit, I can use this as a teaching tool. So I have my AMA Pro license, and I started writing a curriculum for a riders clinic where I would rent the track out and I would teach just riding technique, racecraft, and I would film the rider and then we'd come back into the classroom and show it on, on the screen yep. and, and all that. Uh, this was in, this was in 03. No, sorry, this was in 09. So I'm racing an 09 Yamaha R6. I'm racing it in seven races every Sunday. So I would race against Three different 600 classes, which were differentiated with different engine modifications or tire requirements and things. A 750 class and three 1,000cc classes. So the biggest, fastest bikes on slicks, unlimited modifications allowed. And I'm on a 600 that has no engine mods. It's got a great suspension. Very dialed in brakes. I won 27 races in a row. It's pretty good. In the first mm -hmm. part of the 09 season. And then I had a very bad day. Uh, one of my buddies, Zach, uh, crashed right in front of me, going into a corner, and I ran over him. I actually caught air, and that was his pelvis. Mm -hmm. uh, they flew him out. Uh, I, I crashed in the process. My crew helped get the bike back together. And uh, I did the next race that I was slated to do. And something didn't feel right about the bike. Um, so I, I pulled out of that race, checked everything out. The next race that I did, which was after lunch, I went out kind of easy. I had three guys in front of me. Took about four laps, pretty easy, and bike felt fine, so I thought, okay, I'm going to go to the front. I'm ready. So I'm, I'm making a really fast run at these guys going into the slowest corner of the track. And I went for my front brake, and it came all the way to the grip. Oh, boy. No front brakes. And the rear brake, that doesn't do anything. <laughs> So in a split second, I had to decide, am I going to bowl over three of my buddies and take us all out, or am I going to swerve off track and try and get this thing stopped? I hit a tire barrier, 
head on at about 90 miles an hour and flew over the over the fence out of the track like home run and um, broke two vertebrae in my neck broke my left femur and my left ankle and that ended my motorcycle racing career I still rode on the street after that but the street doesn't hold as much excitement you know once you've once you've raced and kind of tasted blood a little bit as a competitor. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I, man, I just miss teaching. It, just, just that heartache, man, because all, all, those, all those trophies that I drive home on Saturday evening with meant nothing to me compared to the 12 people that had come through my new racers clinic because I passed on my knowledge and the joy of racing and everything that racing can teach you in life um, to them. So one of those interesting things is um, the way racing can teach you sportsmanship, honesty, preparation, mental state, uh, all, all of these lessons. That you, and one of the biggest things was how to control your nerves because you will never feel more like you're going to climb out of your skin than when you're on the starting grid of a motorcycle race and everybody's engine is at 10,000 RPMs and you're waiting there like with a hair trigger ready to dump the clutch when the flagman shows you that green flag. It's the most amazing feeling. The translation from that to the fire service should be obvious because now when you pull up and... Engine 603 to alarm, we're on the scene of an obvious working fire. We're going to establish our own supply and pull engine three-quarter of the front door for search and rescue and fire. Big deal, right? <laughs> when, when you can control your emotions in a, in a race, riding around on a machine that could kill you, you can, you can take that other places. So that was always one of the things that I taught. You, know, you can take these lessons from racing. You can take these lessons from competition and apply them to other places in your life. So I always did that, especially when I was bumped up as a company officer or as a, an engineer. But that company officer role was very attractive to me. I really, really liked that because I knew that, number one, we were going to have a great time. It was guaranteed we were going to have a good shift. We were going to have fun. And I was going to put my guys first because my, my needs – if they're put in the back seat, kind of like those trophies, and I put the needs of my guys first, one of the things I used to love, first thing in the morning, we'd sit down around the table. After we did truck check, I would say, all right, what do you guys need to be successful today? What do we need, what do we need to get done? Uh, I need a new hood. Hey, my, this is broken on the truck. All right, cool. Let's do it. Make it happen. And I would let them do it. Yeah, I would empower them to do the things that, that they could do. And then, I'd, you know, in the background, I'd call the BC and say, hey, just checking in. Here's what we're doing today. I turn the guys loose on this, that. And then in return, those BCs would go, all right, let me know if you need anything. So I was, I was qualified as a, as a CANACT engineer and a CANACT captain probably for the last six, seven years of my career. Mm-hmm. So I, I spent a lot of time bumped up. 
And um, that that feeling of when a call doesn't go great is a hell of a lot different when you're the guy in charge. Yeah, the designated adult. In the front seat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm supposed to be an Stuff. adult. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, again, more body blows, more shots to the head. And, uh, and then we run a really bad confined space call at Frank Lloyd Wright and Scottsdale Road. We showed up, and there were two workers I know this about call. 24 feet down in a vault. Uh, they were they were trying to replace uh, a sump pump, a drainage pump that had gone bad. Mm-hmm. And they were overcome by hydrogen sulfide. Yeah, one was down in there and the other went to rescue Yeah, him, it was a classic, right? like yeah. dominoes. There were yep. three guys working there. Eventually, all three of them wound up in there. Mm-hmm. And then one actually made it out. And he looked, you remember the cartoon Swamp Thing? Mm-hmm. Thing you know, that's what he looked like Ooh, when boy. he came out of there. It was grease, sewage, wow. right? So... It looked like we were in rescue mode. The two guys were, were, were dry. They were, they were down there moving around. Over the course of, of time that it took to set up our con space evolution, which, remember, it's the most complex thing. 100%. That space had refilled with water and product, we'll call it. Yeah that was coming from all the the surrounding businesses in that parking lot. And we switched over to recovery mode at that point. Now, at that time, I had probably taught regional con space at least six times. And one of the things that I realized was I I started timing crews. I'm going to time you guys. From the time that that I hear that, that air break set to the time that you're ready to put somebody in the hole that, that's the time what do you guys think was the average time the first that first go around that year that i that i timed everybody 25 minutes yeah i'm gonna say yeah. less than 30 but pretty close to 30 45 minutes mm. and it wasn't due to a lack of will Right, right. Guys were trying, but there was just too much shit. Yeah, it's the complexity much of the to deal overall with. setup. So I stood back and I looked at all this gear and I realized, okay, we could be carrying all of our hose pre-connected. We could be carrying that comm kit all pre-connected inside that Pelican box ready to deploy. We could be carrying so many things pre-rigged. Mm-hmm. Remote air type stuff. Yeah, and, and label it color code things put labels on it you don't set up all that stuff frequently enough to to kick ass what do you think it was the fastest time that that we that i ever saw setting that up 15 yeah that's that's my number exactly my crew did it in 12 which right yeah it had to be on a shift right (laughs) (laughs) that was c shift well the shit was super clean then right (laughs) super clean and they set it up 12 12 minutes man (laughs) okay so anyway again not bragging but my point is no a huge improvement in a in a in a fantastic recognition of the process it took to improve that you're a numbers guy we get it the point is we were fast yeah that wasn't fast enough 
at Franklin Wright and yeah. Scottsdale. Yeah. Right. So even the fastest was a crew was not going to save these these guys. Everything slowed down because it was a body recovery, and I was lowered in first to to take the first first body out. And um, man, I'll tell you what that that stuck with me. Being lowered you know, again, very comfortable at height. I could hang from a harness all day and not care. Put me upside down. I'll write a book. Whatever. But it's dark. It has already killed two guys. Hydrogen sulfide was identified. Hydrogen cyanide was identified. And several other things that they could not identify with the hazmat mm-hmm. guys. And now you're going in in a level B non-encapsulating suit that you don't usually work in. Because I was not a Haztec, right? Um they brought me out basically, basically splash protection, right? Uh, no, better than that. Okay. So a Tyvek suit, think Breaking Bad mm-hmm. kind of thing. Oh yeah, yeah. To step up above that, so okay. it's got built-in it's, booties. Oh, okay. And all, Is it the right? green ones? Onesie. Uh, there, this one was like a beige color. Okay. Yeah. All right. So you're in that. It's a heavy, like a heavy, almost like a like a salvage cover kind of okay. material, okay. right? They, I do all the rigging. They bring me up out of the space. They're starting to decon me, and I get really dizzy. And I realize my feet are soaking wet. And I thought, holy shit. I tore the suit, and I've been exposed. And I'm, have, I'm you know, having a hazmat mm-hmm. exposure. They were, my feet, my legs were wet up to almost knee high. Turns out that. That was sweat. Yeah, I was gonna say. I filled that thing sweat. up. It was early summer, right? It was. Yeah, it was yeah. during yeah. monsoon season. Oh, okay. I think it was in August. Oh, okay, yeah. so later summer. Right. I remember it being hot. Yeah. Time of year. Yeah. Um, so I get transported, and uh, at that point, I had been going to a psychiatrist off and on for work stuff through the employee assistance program. Since '09, so so how, so how many years is that? At that point, we're, we're talking uh, six, seven years. Yeah, we're talking probably seven years. Okay. Yeah. Um. So I went back because we had that call. We had a bunch of really shitty op- opiate overdoses, and then we found one of our fire captains deceased in his house. Uh, he wound up having a PE and nobody had heard from him. Hmm. Stack all those together. And now it's not body blow, body blow. It's repeated knockout punches. So I go to therapy. I feel like I got a handle on it. Yeah. Is therapy effective for you, you feel like? I thought it was. Okay. thought it was. At the time. Yeah. You feel differently now? I do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, it's just that cup, right? So that cup's now full and it's starting to spill to- over. Totally yeah. full. So yeah. you're just, and now you're just, you're just yeah. getting a little bit out, a little bit out, yeah. and just kind of keeping you there yeah. for a while. Um, went through a second divorce just kind of shortly after that, maybe six, six, eight months after that. Um, and I'm still, you know, I'm back at work. 
things at work are going fine. And there's some degree of reverence for my crew because we did that like career call for, for TRT. There's n- hasn't been a call like that up to this point that I had ever heard of and hopefully there never will be again. Um, so while I'm being revered while I'm teaching con space or swift water or whatever in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, man, we we lost those guys, right? That's weighing heavy. Just kind of carrying it around with me. Um, and then I suffered a, a really big loss and that was being, uh, taken out of my TRT assignment because I was accused, I was accused of bullying. So the department came in and said, you can't do this anymore. The way this worked out was there was, um, there was another firefighter that I had started mentoring actually the day of that con space call. Um, worked with him. He was somewhat skills deficient with fire and technical rescue. And I, t- I really took him on as a challenge. He actually transferred to the station under my recommendation because I want, I, I thought, okay, here's a, here's a challenge and that's what I like. And, um, yeah, if I can if I can turn him around, that's going to be pretty awesome. So we start working together uh, every shift. We're going over something, right? And he was struggling, but kind of just never gave up. Struggling skills-wise uh, and effective attitude or struggling in both? He had a great attitude. Okay. Uh, he, he struggled with retention of the information. Okay. So you teach something. And then the next shift, yeah. hey, you remember yeah. XYZ? Mm, no. 51st shifts. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. So I love dudes like that. Yeah. Every shift's an adventure for me. I'm like, yeah. let's do this again. This is yeah. awesome. <laughs> so now, mind you, I, I'm, uh, I'm kind of working in and out of that captain role. Yeah. yeah. My captain had been off with shingles for, for a few weeks. So I was bumped up for a lot of shifts, right? And this firefighter that I was mentoring, I believe, struggled with the fact that I could be backwards with him one day and then up in the front seat the next day leading the crew and and essentially telling them what to do. Mm -hmm. Uh, There was an incident with him driving the truck uh, where something very bad could have happened but did not. It was, I would call it a near miss that had to do with acting as a driver or was he normally a driver? He was doing, uh, on the job training to try to be a can act engineer. Got it. Um, which never happened. Um, some things were said and he took that as bullying. So he moved forward with, with a complaint to HR they separated us. I went to the, the backup TRT station for a while, and they did a full investigation. They found nothing wrong. So they said, put Rick back at 610. And it's my understanding that he got wind of that and took it to senior staff. 
and they decided that I was not going to be able to work with him anymore. And they could not protect me. They instead had to protect him because he had made the allegations. So false or not. Yeah, unfounded allegations, though. Uh, yeah, Go ahead. Yeah, there's, a, there's a, a sentence at the end of the AR that deals with that. Mm-hmm. But everything else kind of negates it. Yeah. Particularly with, with this person. Got it. Um, so they said, okay, you're, you're going roving. And we have no roving TRT spots. So you're off the team. So I had done TRT for my entire career at that point. And now because of a false allegation from one person, I've lost not only a, like a really special assignment, it's kind of coveted, but part of my identity. So you lost a major part of you. Yeah. Now yeah. you're just rich. Dude, so I'm a firefighter in disguise. Yeah. Like I, I've had this long hair for like the last 10 years, right? Me too. I don't have, I don't have fire stickers all over my truck. I, I, don't, I don't wear you know, a fire t-shirt yeah, right. or go to the gym in my PT yeah, shorts. Yeah, yeah. You know, when, I, when I left the station, I, I truly left the station. However, TRT was always a big part of my life. And now I can't do that anymore. Off to the side, I was told by high-ranking officials that I needed to get back to TRT as soon as I possibly could and that I was welcome to be on the team as long as I wasn't working on that shift with that other person. That sounds like that's their responsibility to take care of, not yours. <laughs> yeah. That's what I was thinking. Again, because of, the, because of this individual, I think their hands were tied. Protected class? Yes. Okay. So we got that going on. Or they perceive their hands are tied. Yeah. Truly. I think that's a more accurate statement. It, it's an easier road to just sit. For yeah, sure. Totally got it. Yep. Tracking. Um, so I rove for a couple months and then I bid into a, a station that's like right down the street from my house, 603 McDonald and Scottsdale. Okay. Perfect. Awesome crew. Just, just kill, busy just enough. Just killer. Borderline. Okay. Borderline. It's, you know, it's it, a little way from downtown. Well, it's, it's second. It's usually second due to okay. the bar district. Got it. Second to third. Okay. But there's two trucks at 602, so they can they're usually on top of it. Got it. Um, but yeah, bu- busy. Yeah. Um, I take on a couple new medic students while I'm there. That goes great. Um, and then something just hit me just right in that punch out video game. And it was a very insignificant confrontation at home stacked with that added stress at work. That, uh, By the way, I lost my acting captain status for a while, too. As a, as a part of this situation? Sure did. Interesting. I, I had regained that. Um, so there was all kinds of stress involved with that. Um, And I decided that I didn't want to go on. 
So what's the buildup? Cause that, cause it seems like, you know, you like you're, you, um, you have things al- along your career that are hits on you for sure. And there's that, that cup starting to get filled up and then it overflows. You dump a little out, come, come there. Like what's, yeah. what's the buildup to that? Is it, um, cause, uh, is it, Hey, I failed at a couple of marriages. Now this shit happened. Is it the cumulative effect of it? You think now that you can think retrospectively to where you're at, because there's got to be the buildup to it that breaks you, and then and then you don't figure out what that what that snap is until yeah, probably the other side, right? So I feel like we remember our failures far easier than we remember our successes. Absolutely, yeah, 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 yeah. For sure. And at, at that point, I had taken up Olympic recurve target archery. And shot some national tournaments. I was I was ranked in the fifties in the U.S. Mm-hmm. after shooting for a year. Like that's how much time I was. So I was using archery to kind of just escape everything. Mm-hmm. I'd go to the range for yeah. hours and just it was like a meditative. Yeah, that's what I call pajama wrestling. Therapy. Yeah, right. yeah, or yeah. mountain biking or whatever. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, there had been all of these. Yeah, two marriages didn't work out. Um, the bad part of work from an HR standpoint, let alone losing patients. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, all of that just cumulative, that, that stack. Right. So where's your self esteem? I liken it at to that point. Like, 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 do you look at yourself in the mirror at that point and be like, Hey, I'm a solid dude. Like my shit's together. I'm my doing self esteem was great. It was good. Yeah. Okay. Which was why all this hit me so hard. Right. Because I, th- I thought, okay. Because it's a drastic change in I, your self-esteem? Yeah. You, you I, I feel great about myself, but they're on the surface, like looking in the mirror, right? Well, I guess but I'm asking under, like deep inside yourself, like 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 the surface, whatever. Hey, yeah, I'm fit. Yeah. I'm I'm, I'm a talented guy. I'm smart, blah, blah, blah. But deep inside at yourself at that point, are you 100% good with yourself? No, I 100% hated myself. Okay. That, yeah, that's, that's where I was getting to. Since I was a kid, yeah, yeah, for sure, yeah. And Since I was a very young kid, well, because I'm picking up on some of these on some of these things that you're saying. Like you and tell me, I'm totally off base or shoving up my ass here. But a lot of these things that you do reinforce that you're okay and that and that and that you're worthy of whatever, whether it be someone else's acceptance or or your father's love or your mother's love, or something like that. Like, hey, look at me, somebody look at me. Like yeah. I'm doing all this cool shit. Completely left over from from that that childhood of, of playing second fiddle. Yeah. Or maybe from that football feeling like you're in the, too, right? in the backseat. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All those things set the combination lock just right. Yep. And then the final digit and it was over. Yeah. Right. Well, so, and then like, then other things like you being such a revered member of, of, of the TRT program and people looking up to you and stuff like that. And then for them to turn around, and be like, "Hey, thanks for doing all this shit for us, but fuck you, yeah, go you rogue. can't be here anymore. Yeah, no. you're, you're not worth shit." So you're like, "Yeah, what the fuck? Like, I just that like, actually makes yeah. me angry." Yeah, I well, with a lot of therapy, I'm working through that. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 <laughs> no. I'm a, I'm I'm a, I'm very very distant from it, but just yeah. just the the circumstances you're describing and yeah. the reaction to it that actually makes me angry. That's like that's. Poor organizational decision making, if you ask me. Here's the problem with that: when you got an HR issue, um, now go back. When you have a dif- when you have a, a difficulty or a problem in the fire department, the fire fire department can handle it. 
on their side of the house. Sometimes. Right? When it's on their <laughs> terms. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So if things don't go out of that fire department lane, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm golden. Tra- I'm totally on, tracking On it. paper mm-hmm. right now. Been in both lanes. As, yep. Sure. <laughs> now, as soon as it goes to HR, the fire department has zero control over it. There was nobody in the fire department's side that could tell me anything about the HR investigation because they didn't know. It was all HR driven. Now, I feel like it's very telling that I still had a job after that HR investigation was over, right? Because if they had found something, boom, I would have been gone. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Especially if it sounds like in that city, right? Yes. They're not very, they're risk averse. Yeah. Very risk averse. In fact, those words were told to me by senior staff. Mm, mm-hmm. So, yeah, their their hands were just tied. Yeah, I got it. So, um, it still doesn't feel good. It still doesn't 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 no. doesn't. It, make all right, me it just changes it. the focus of my anger from the from <laughs> your department to the, your city. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. yeah. Uh, focus it on on the individual. Okay, yeah. fair enough. Yeah, yeah. fair and, enough. And, and the, then deep and, down inside, and, and, like, I, I'm telling you. The, the things that I was accused of could have been handled at the kitchen table or in the captain's office right. in 30 seconds. Yeah, right, right. I'm, I'm not yeah. kidding. Com- well, right. most things are completely Soul stupid, brother. right? Yeah. 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 Get your ego out of the way and be like, okay, I fucked up. Sorry. Let's sure. Move on. Yeah. yeah. So you got to a pretty important part here, and I, I don't mean to, to, to redirect you, so I want to try to just get back to it because you, you made a, the last thing you said in the story was I... I, I believe you said that I feel like I want to end this. Yeah. Um, so I've, I've been in a great relationship for four years now. And we do these amazing road trips, Lynn and I, and we'll hit the road for, for you know, a couple weeks at a time. Mm-hmm. And we, we have a synergy between us that we can do – a 16-day road trip and only know where we're going to be on the first and last nights. That sounds perfect. And make up the rest of the things. Yeah, that that's go pretty on. awesome. I'm in on that. All there's time. there's yeah. some trust there, right? <laughs> there's a ton of trust yeah, there. Yeah, ton. And you know, I've, I've been doing quote overlanding since way before it was uh-huh. called off-roading that. and camping. Yeah, yes, exactly. exactly. <laughs> yeah. Just like backcountry travel. Yeah, that's yeah. a cute name. You know, <laughs> climbing, kayaking, mountain biking. I. We're adventure sports athletes, cool. right? It's kind of what we do. Yeah. Skiing. Um, so last year in uh, in August, we were on the road for 16 days. Had an amazing road trip. It's just, just unbelievable. Once in a lifetime thing that we do a couple times a year, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Come back. The very first freaking call, the very first shift back, opiate overdose not salvageable not a viable patient but the mom is standing there hysterical right that's one of my things okay if i have a patient they're clearly not going to make it now the focus kind of turns to the family yep and that's always been kind of the hard thing sometimes you got to work it Yeah. yeah sometimes you have to so we did i think kind of shut some of that out of my mind um so yeah, that hit me hard, and then this kind of seemingly benign confrontation that that Lynn and I had, and I thought, "Holy shit, I'm being accused of something I didn't do again." 
And last time it cost me one of the most important things in my life. And now it could totally cost me the most important thing in my life is this relationship. Mm -hmm. Um, That was on 9-11 of all days. So that night I called the crisis line and... Uh, uh, a general crisis well, line or our, e, our EAP gonna, crisis yeah, line? Yeah, I'm not going to tell you which one it was. Oh, okay. It's, okay. It is well known amongst Valley firefighters. Okay. okay. Got it. Got it. Um, Sesame Street. That got me th- kind of <laughs> through the night. Okay. Um, but I kind of laid there awake and made a plan for the next morning. Had you ever thought about that? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Prior to that. Yeah. How often okay. and like for how long you think? Uh, since I was a kid. Okay. Yeah. Really? Interesting. Yeah. Kind of, kind of around that, that age where they told me I was adopted. Right. I was thrust into this huge identity crisis. Yeah. Like, who am well, I? Who am I? Yeah. Who's my mom? Who's my dad? Yeah. What do they do? What are they like? What? Yeah. Cause you're, you're a deep guy. So like you're probably and like I said, correct me if I'm wrong again, but you're probably not real good at the surface level shit. Like you're deep. I'll express myself to a, to an extent. Yeah. But yeah, I, I, I became very good at, at masking, just burying yeah. everything. You did masking. Yeah. And like a lot of that stuff that you did help mask all, all that, like, you know, the speed, the, on the edge stuff that masked a lot of right. those like things that you weren't ready to face at that time. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. But they were all band-aids. Oh yeah, yeah they're, right. they're just you yeah. know mm-hmm. you're just masking it. Like God dang it, you know we lost, we lost another one, yesterday, but fuck it, I'm racing today, mm-hmm. and I'm gonna go faster around this track than I ever have. In fact, you know what, I'm gonna go faster around this track than anyone ever has. Which probably made you feel more alive. It did. Yeah, and I set a lap record on Firebird, Maine that I think still stands. And when I was, but here's the thing, when I was, when I was riding like that, when I was racing on the surface, you look at that and go, those guys are freaking crazy. But when I had a knee on the ground at 90 miles an hour, I was thinking about what I was going to order for dinner. Well, I tried to explain it with my mind was just, I was doing all of that with my subconscious mind mm-hmm. and my conscious mind. That might be why you were so relaxing. Yeah. Yes, it is. Yeah. And the subconscious is a, a huge key to success at archery, yeah. which I've found out, and it's and it's there you go. and it's pattern yeah, right. and pattern recognition and it all that stuff that, that that comes along with it. Because if you're thinking at that speed, you're not right. Yeah. So, but if you think about falling, you're gonna fall. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, I, I, just I couldn't take another day. Right. Couldn't handle another loss. Are you at home this day? Yeah, I was on a four-day. Okay. Yeah. And, and like on the third or, or fourth day of, of your days off? I think it was the second. Okay. So you're just getting yeah. So you're just right. getting into it. So here's something. I would come home from work you know, on that first day of the four-day. I'd just be kind of beat. I might not be myself. might need to go shooting for a while just to kind of get my feet back on the ground. And the night before which kind of turned into the day before I would go back to shift, I'd start feeling anxious, mm-hmm. right? Something's just not freaking right. Like, man, I don't, don't want to freaking 
It's not the excitement to go to work now. It's the excitement of maybe not dread, but mm, it feels... Total dread. Oh, it is dread. Total dread. You still want to be there. I don't want to be up again. I don't want to... I don't want to see more dead people. I don't want to see another person's kitchen destroyed because they freaking, you know, left something on the stove. I don't want, I'd be fine if I never ran another call. The triggers right. at that point, it sounds like, are anything. Could be not, any, yeah, could the, be anything. Well, looking back, I, I know now that the threat of loss. Yeah, but a, any, loss. Sure. any loss. Yeah. Yeah. Well, our business is lost, yeah, right? <laughs> for sure. It, yeah. it is. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. Um, yeah, the threat of loss, uh, smelling sewer gas, mm-hmm. that was a trigger. Yeah. Mm. Seeing a manhole cover, that was a trigger. Mm. You know, some very specific things that would kind of put me into that, oh, that holy shit mode. Mm-hmm. And eventually it got to the point where I knew that when I went back to work, there was a chance that all of that could happen again. Yeah. Plus, on top of that, there were a lot of days when I, sh- when I would show up to work and they'd go, oh, hey, the engineer's off today, so you're driving. Oh. A little added right. uncertainty. Okay. I'll set everything at 150 and we'll probably be good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Or I'd show up and i Pump I'd- at 150, cook at 350. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Bench 300. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> or I would go to the met, the off-going medic, and I'd say, hey, how'd you, how'd you guys do? What do you guys at all there? And he'd look at me and go, oh, you're captain today. Fuck. All right, on-scene report, volume two, got to call the BC. You know, but which yeah. was, I'd been doing it for six years at that point. I, I knew what I was doing, but the the disruption of your routine. Everything's heavy for you, no matter yeah, what it is. Everything's sure. heavy. Yeah. yeah. No, it's total, it makes total yeah. sense. And it, on, on paper, God, it looks like I'm fucking killing it. I've yeah. won all these races. I'm shooting a bow. I got an amazing girlfriend. You do all these trips. You're yeah. acting captain. You're kind of on a return to splendor after, you know, some bullshit that you went through. And I just never got over all, uh, yeah. the all, all that right. bullshit on mm-hmm. the inside. So I checked into a hotel room and I administered a lethal injection. Early on in my relationship with Lynn, I told her, hey, there's going to come a time when I call you and I, from work and I say, hey, I just wanted to hear your voice. What that means is some bad shit just happened and I just want you to tell me what you had for lunch, what you're, gonna, what you're doing at work, just talk, right? A positive anchor. And I, totally. Yeah. Get my feet back on the ground for yeah. me. There were several times where I went out in the bay after shitty calls and called her up and said, hey, Did you talk to me. do it in Scottsdale, obviously? Yeah. Did you do it where, where, where you knew who would be running on you? My intent was not to fail. Okay. You'd never failed at anything, Rick. No. Really? And looking at... at um, what I administered, it was completely foolproof. I, I was dead. Yeah. No questions. Because uh, because if you're in Scottsdale, your your brothers and sisters are going to run on you, whether you're maybe. dead or alive. Not right? if PD gets there first. Yeah, right. right. And they got a dead body. Yeah, if right. you're not on age. Do you, in Scottsdale they they still don't make the medics come in and run a strip? Nine one eight. 
obvious 901H. No. I can't imagine they right. yeah, would. Yeah. I'd put, of... put a note on the door so when the maids open the door, they would know not to come in and to call police. Gotcha. Left my ID and all that. Yeah. How, how, how much it, preparation? Yeah, I was going to say, that's my question. Rick? From and I don't, and I, I really don't mean to be clinical about this. I, I'm, no, I'm yeah. sorry, but I'm, but I'm, I'm just, in, I'm curious about your head before, yeah. before, right before you get there. From the night of the eleventh, that was that was when it started. Okay, mm-hmm. I, and I you're at had, home then, right? Yeah. Okay, yeah, I was at home, and then you checked into the hotel next the, day. Yeah, the morning of the twelfth. Okay, okay. morning of the twelfth. Yeah. Um. Sorry, man. I'm just, so, we're trying to just paint the picture for yeah. for everything. So totally, yeah. So the plan was to have PD show up well over 24 hours later. Gotcha. Have an obvious 901, and that's it. Nobody's coming. I called Lynn, and I said something like, and my head was not in. Uh, it's normal place, but I said something like, hey, just checking in, just wanted to hear your voice. And she asked where I was. I said, don't worry about it. I'm okay. And um, that was it. We talked for a second and and then hung up. And I had my cell phone, and I was, I was listening to the highway on XM radio, listening to a little country music. And getting a lot of medicine ready and Lynn uh, through her work has access to SPD and uh, Scottsdale Police and um, she said hey Rick's missing we need to find him and they pinged my cell phone so they called her back and they said where would he be if he was at around such and such intersection mm-hmm. And she said, that would be such and such hotel. Um, and they asked how she knew that. She said, well, we we went there for a staycation for his birthday last week. And um, I've always had a hard time with birthdays because I'm adopted, right? Every time that comes around, you think, you kind of go through that identity crisis. So there's another thing, right? All this stuff. So... They send officers to our house and they send officers to the hotel and they figure out what room I'm in. And uh, I was in agonal respirations. The officers gave all the Narcan that they carry, intranasal. Maybe six milligrams? Uh, Yeah, total. And then... um, The guys from my station on the other shift responded. And I did not plan that. I would never want that. Mm-hmm. But they saved my life. Um, they gave all the Narcan that they had out of two drug boxes. They had an an ambulance meet, or they had a fire truck meet the transporting ambulance along the way to the hospital. 
so they could get another drug box. I got about 10 times the normal dose of Narcan. It was obvious to them, based on what was in the room, that what, what they were dealing with. That, plus there was one other thing that, that we can't treat for. Um, so they were, they were trying with the Narcan, but they were just providing airway support. Got it. Um, so they got me to Osborne. I was in a coma for four days. They would try to, they would try to, and I was on a vent. They would try to take me off the vent, and I, I wouldn't make it. Couldn't, couldn't handle it. And uh, on the fifth day, I woke up. They, they took me off the vent. I regained consciousness over the course of a couple hours, and the first thing that I remember was looking up at the, the clock on, high up on the wall in front of my hospital bed. And kind of patting myself down and and thinking, that didn't fucking work. And then I looked to my right and Lynn was sitting there and I immediately regretted what I did and have ever since. Mm -hmm. She, She really was the one that saved my life. Had she not done what she did, I wouldn't be here. So the process then starts uh, toward psychiatric care. Okay, what, do, what now? Where, where does he go? How long do you end up being in the hospital? I was in the hospital for a week. At some point on that f- fifth day, one of our union e-board members came in and said, have you ever heard of the IFF Center of Excellence in Maryland? said, no. He said, well, it's an inpatient psychiatric facility and they only treat firefighters. Are you interested? And I said, yep. Now, at that point, I didn't know how long the program was. I didn't know how I was going to get there. If you gave me a blank map of the U.S., I'd have a hard time pointing exactly to Maryland because mm-hmm. I'm an Arizona West Coast dude. Yeah. But at that point, I just said, do it. What, whatever needs doing, that's for me. So you were ready at that point? Yeah. Did you look at it as another step of training? Treatment at the center? Tra- uh, no, training. You've spent your life looking at doing something new, something different, some, educating yourself, improving yourself, all that. Yes. Or No, I, I wasn't with it enough yet. Okay, all right. This was just, this don't, was just okay, cool. I'll go was, there and get this help. This was just help me. Okay, yeah, like, got it. I'm, I'm fucked up right now. Got and it. what I just did I nowhere, was a massive mistake. Something is seriously wrong here. Got it. So over the course of the next couple of days, we deal with insurance, we deal with transportation, we deal with... Um, uh, discharge and intake from Osborne to the center. Um, there were a lot of complications that got overcome by a lot of people that really cared a lot about me. And Brad, my um, my buddy in the union, drove me from Osborne to Sky Harbor Airport, got on a plane with me and flew to, to Maryland and then drove me to the center dropped me off. Um, 
mind you, at this point, I'm I'm probably 30 pounds lighter than normal at that point. Um, had just been in a coma for four days. Mm-hmm. Um, pretty heavy stuff going down, right? So, how I, do you feel at that point? Like on that plane like ride, I was barely alive. So you're numb, like you're numb. Like, what are you feeling if, like, you can go back to that point? I think regret, again, was the, was the biggest emotion. Yeah. I just felt huge amounts of regret for what I had put all of these people through. Regretting was, it, were you, were you, was there shame involved in that, do, do you think? No, no, there actually wasn't. There, there wasn't. Because I think that to feel shame, you have to you have to be embarrassed of what you did or what you are. And I wasn't because I knew that, that what was wrong was not my responsibility. It was the product of everything I experienced in my entire life up to that point. And I'll never be ashamed of, of my life. No way. So, I get checked in. They uh, they have a process by which you are medically cleared over the course of a couple of days, and I developed some pretty heavy difficulty breathing and some right flank pain that I could not get away from. The th- second morning that I was there, um, my pulse ox had dropped to ninety, and I was speaking one word sentences. Interesting. So I got transported to the hospital, a chest x-ray, didn't find anything, did a CT, and found bilateral pulmonary embolisms in my lungs, blood clots in in both lungs. Certainly from being bedridden for a week, which is definitely not normal for me. Um, And then the flight didn't help. However, that distance of, of flight is right on the on the edge of what's considered a long flight, which is four hours. So I didn't, you know, that wasn't really a, an issue. It was mostly just inactivity, I think. So I wind up on uh, treatment for for those blood clots, and they send me back to the back to the center. And uh, over the next thirty four days. I went through the equivalent of about two and a half years of therapy if a guy were to go for an hour a week. So essentially group therapy and one-on-one therapy all day. And then some of the most important therapy, which started at 4.15 when the program ended, and you're there with a firefighter from New York that lost his crew at 9-11. You're there with a wildland firefighter from Tennessee who had a tree fall on his dozer and burn him up. You're there with people that have experienced pretty much all the same stuff, right? All that same repetitive trauma. You're not alone. At a low level, and then the big ones on top of it. Mm -hmm. And here's who was there. With the exception of one guy, on average, it was... People in their their early to mid forties, 
with about 10 plus years on the job. There was one guy that had that had one year on and, and he had gone through his share of, of stuff for sure. Were you the most, uh, for lack of a better term, most senior person there, like time-wise? Yeah, a lot of guys asked if I was a BC. Oh, okay. <laughs> I was a battalion yeah, chief. It was the time on, I guess. Yeah, right. Um, so... Within the first, uh, within the first couple days of being there, I was di- diagnosed with PTSD, um, major depressive disorder, and anxiety. They didn't say, "Hey, we're going to put you on these meds. Here, take this stuff." There was a med discussion, and I did make a decision to to try some some meds, which totally helped. Um, Therapy was amazing at this place. I never felt like I was um, alone. You know, there were always people there to talk to. And if you didn't want to talk, you didn't have to. They have hiking trails there. You can go take a hike in the woods for a half hour after, or, you know, in between classes or after lunch or something, or first thing in the morning. I finally got to the point where I could where I could work out again. There's a, a gym there. They have a psychiatrist and a whole bunch of psychologists, a whole bunch of counselors. I was assigned to uh, an amazing psychologist named Audra. And we did one-on-one therapy for an hour every week. And then you also have the option of doing couples therapy for an hour a week. So I thought, yeah, we might as well. So two hours a week of, of that. Um, she's present. This isn't like video or anything like that. She's there with you. No. So we, we did those over speakerphone. Oh, okay. Yeah. So we're in the office and then we'd call her a phone conference. Um, yeah, the whole experience there was, was absolutely amazing. I, I, I learned what PTSD is. I thought I knew what it was before I went there. I also thought, I'm never going to have that. I might have even had some judgment for the people that that did have that. Mm-hmm. Which is pretty murky water, really. Um, well, kind of back to our conversation before. Yeah. Until you walk in those shoes. For sure. Can't, yeah. you know. Yeah can't say yes or no to it yeah you gotta walk on them first and i learned how to i learned why i had it and i learned how to cope with it so do you think it sounds like through that journey you became a a little more empathetic to others totally yeah and since then i have made myself a a resource that's available to to people to talk to sounds like that's how you're built like I'm not. Well, look, yeah, you're, look you, at all those things that I told oh you about. Yeah, absolutely. You know, You've kind of mastered hey, it. I learned how to do this. Right. Now I want to pass it on. Yeah, for sure. I learned how to do yeah. this. That's who you are. Yeah. And I don't choose to do that. I, and I don't know why I do it. Well, it just that's how you're built, man. You yeah. Can't, you know, you can't take. But it, I feel t- like I like it. it. Yeah. Like when I, well, there's there's fulfillment. Yeah, you get something from it for there. sure. Yeah. Yeah. And not not no not in a negative way. You're yeah. getting something that's certainly not that, fe- yeah. that feeds yeah. you and right. it feeds them. Yeah. 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 
Yeah, it's Mutually okay to helpful. be selfish. And selfish isn't always a bad thing. It could be right. you know that you're getting something from it, but you're helping others. You yeah. know, that's a, yeah. You, it's okay to get something from yeah. it, right? Uh, yeah. Today, how do you feel now? Like maybe physically and mentally, how do you feel differently than you did than you remember? Maybe feeling at some point, you know, near the near the the, the tipping point. One of the biggest things I notice now is is I don't have those daily thoughts, those daily dark places that I used to go to. That's a win, for sure. You know, right? that's, that's a win. That's huge, yeah. right? That's a win. Yeah. And I... Were you, you conscious know, of those dark thoughts? I was, but don't think that I was just walking around all the time thinking, oh, I'm going to kill myself today. Got it. What, what it was, was it was like a safety net. Like, well, if this doesn't work out, I can always just end it. Yeah. There's my fail safe. Was, yeah. Yeah. Um, did, and did you, have you gone back? I'm, I'm assuming that you've, that you've talked to the crew, not talked to the crew. How'd you address that? Because I'm sure there had to be some closure around there or something. I talked to one of the medics that, that worked on me. Um, and that was rough. Yeah. I'm for, sure it wasn't easy. both of us. Yeah. In, in, in what way? Uh, uh, um, it brought back that regret that I felt on the plane ride. Mm-hmm. Like I saw, God dang it, here's the guy that I've shown up at the station and, and taken report from so he can go home to his family. And, now, and then he had to show up and work me. You know. So, yeah, I felt that regret. Um, but then one of the things that I've learned is to try and, put, try and find the positive in in anything that just really seems negative. Yep. So in this case, the positive was, man, I, I sure am glad I'm, I'm still here to give Scott a big old hug. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because that is, that is one thing that we have control of, right? Is our reaction to whatever it is. So, yeah. You know, and I got to believe he feels the same way. Yeah. He does. Because yeah. well, those he guys does. need coaching. He, he expressed himself to me. <laughs> Yeah. You know, he, he wasn't happy, but he was glad that I was still around. You know, you can't, Brandon, it's, it's, here's the thing. You can't make anybody think, feel, or do anything. Exactly. You can just control how you react to it. Mm-hmm. So that search for the positive that, that may kind of appear hidden on the yeah. surface is is my coping mechanism sometimes with dealing with things now, you know? Well, things can always be worse, right? Like, I, like I've had clients of mine um, that have become friends, and a lot of my friends with this, like, you'll find the good in anything. Yeah. There's always good in something, right? Yeah. Like, it could be the most fucked up situation ever, but you can find some good right. in you there You may have somehow. to look for it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. For, it may not be but fun. Yeah. But right. you have to be open to accepting it Absolutely. When, when you find it. Even if that's, you know, somebody cuts you off in traffic, yeah. thinking, hey, I don't know what is going on in that person's life, right? Yeah. They, they could have just lost a loved one. They could mm-hmm. be trying to yeah. get, get to an appointment that, you know. Now, when I'm driving up the 101, I like people to keep their crazy to themselves. <laughs> I don't want to, you know, yeah. Don't, yeah. Don't, uh, don't play bumper cars, but... Um, yeah, when you when you look for the positive in something and are willing to accept it and you're open to it, you'd be surprised what you can see. At any point 
since then, or or maybe 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 closer to when this occurred, did you ever have the desire to go back to work? Until probably my second week at the center, I still thought I was going back to work. Really. There was no doubt in my mind. Was, because you felt like, well, that's just what I have to do, or because you felt like you wanted to? Because I'd been doing it for 27 years. Okay, and that's just what you did. I didn't yeah. know any, you know, what stupid fireman. Right, yeah, <laughs> right, uh-huh. What else, am I, what else can I do? qualified for the food preparation yeah. or the housekeeping industry. Right. Sounds like right. plenty. <laughs> yeah. No, I, yeah, I, I thought I was still going. But then when, when this inner search at the center continued on and I started learning more about what I had and how I got it and what my triggers were. I'm not great at math, but it added up to, you don't need to be a firefighter It was blindingly anymore. obvious is, to you. This is bad for yeah, you. This, got it. Yeah. this time is now over. Yeah. And I, 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 re- I still remember, I went straight to the top. I called my chief. Tom Shannon is one of the most amazing men that I know. And I, I called him and I, and I talked to him and he was, he was there by my side at, in, in the hospital. Mm-hmm. That the, nothing you're saying surprises me. Yeah. And uh, yeah, we had a discussion and that discussion revolved around me thinking, hey, I think it's time to hang it up. And he, he said, hey man, Whatever you decide, I, I support you 100%. And I said, yeah, that's it. So, Were you at total peace or comfort with that the second you realized it? No way. Okay. Well, I was back at, to the identity thing. It's like, right, what the fuck yeah, am I okay. going to do now? Sure. Like, <laughs> I was at peace with the fact that, okay, yeah, I, I don't think I'm going back to work. Yeah. What am I going back to? Can't go do a real job. Now now what do I do? <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, here's the deal. When you do twenty seven years in fire service, oh yeah. You learn all sorts of stuff. Right. And then look back at kind of just how I've lived my life. I'll, you know, my mom used to tell me, Rick, you can fall in shit and come out smelling like a rose. <laughs> <laughs> and I I you know, I have I I broke my back rock climbing. But you know what? That led me down another path yeah. to motorcycle racing. And I still, man, the racing was fun. But the relationships and the people that I met and interacted with and, and those, those experiences that we had together, that's what it, you know, that's what it's, what's really good. You know, guy retires from the fire service, they don't miss the calls, guaranteed. Never. They miss the people they work with. And that is for sure what I miss the most. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I wrote a personal manifesto years ago. I don't know, seven years ago. And part of that manifesto is like life is about um, experiencing things and who you choose to experience experience those things with. Yeah. And like the car, the money, the whatever, none of that shit matters, right? Like yeah. I'm sure you've come through um, a resurgence of yourself or whatever, but, but now um, the experiences that you probably have post that, that, event means so much more than anything yeah right it's like fuck man like nothing's guaranteed like all that mm-hmm. other bullshit was just bullshit and this stuff that i'm hearing now like in this room this meaningful conversation with chris and i and and, and everything these are real tangible things that that 
that you'll remember. Like you're in this room trying to make the world a better place. You're trying to pass us on um, to others that, that have potentially been in, in the same situation. Um, and like, what do you tell those people right now? Like, there's your microphone. You're here. Like, what do you tell the people that are that are thinking the same thing? Like, fuck, man. Maybe maybe my fail safe is I'll take take a little bit of this and it'll, and it'll all be over. You're not alone. You are not the only one that's experiencing this. Um, plenty, plenty of firefighters have that thought. Um, so I've spent a lot of time in the ICU, right? <laughs> between the between the motorcycle and the climb and this, and I, and those have been times during the during my fire service career. So I've had hundreds and hundreds of people come through a, a hospital room, right? This one was serious enough that they decided uh, we're going to do no visitors yeah. this time, right? Well, we find a way, right? Firefighters, you, you tell a firefighter, oh, you, you can't go up to B-147. Okay. Okay. All right. Cool. No problem. They'll show up in a, like a <laughs> delivery uniform or yeah, something, uh-huh. right? Yeah. I'll bring you your lunch. Yeah. So, I, so this time that I was in the ICU, I probably... I probably had about 30 guys visit. Pretty much all of them gave me a big hug, tearful hug. For sure. And pretty much all of them told me that they have, at some point or another, felt exactly the same way as I did. Yeah. So, yeah, what what I'm here to say is is not, hey, hey guys, hey, fire service, don't feel this way. Don't suffer and suffer. Don't do that. Just... My message is, you're not the only one, and there's hope. You, you don't have to live with a fear of going back to the station because you're going to run that bad call, or you're going to be the acting captain that day, or whatever it is that gives you anxiety, or you're going to have to work with that person that may have your career in their hands based on what they say or do. Mm-hmm. Um, so what's your call to action for those people then that are, that are struggling with those things? Well, we all know chain of command, right? So, Rough, loosely, loosely, I like yeah. to say. <laughs> so there's a psychological care chain of command. So my first advice would be to use the resources that your department has available to you. What this doesn't help is the, the small volunteer department off in the woods somewhere, Right. Because a volunteer firefighter could very well experience those big slaps in the face Absolutely. calls, despite the fact that they're not getting the the gut punches over and over and over again. They don't run the volume, but they could definitely run the tragedy. Mm-hmm. Well, and everybody's different. What what for sure? What you went through could have broke somebody in year seven. Yeah, you know, or you know, so so everybody. That's that's the crazy thing about. Um, the psychological part of it, it's going to hit you. It, it may never hit you. It may, it may hit you sooner. Like that kid, it, there was a year It's going to hit you. Yeah, sooner that's, or later. That's what I can yeah. definitely say. It's going to hit yeah, you. Right. Right. So along those lines, um, use the resources that are available for you through your department. That's usually an EAP, Employee Assistance Program. It's free. It's good. It's available. You're probably not going to have a problem finding a provider um, just get started. And when you find somebody, 
if they tell you, yeah, we're not taking anybody for another three weeks, you, you better make that appointment. Just, just do it. So now, okay, you give yourself that little, that little bit more hope. Okay, it might be three weeks, but man, I'm going to see somebody. I'm going to be able to figure this stuff out. Um, failing that, I would love it if I could sit here and tell you that every firefighter anywhere can go to their company officer and say, hey, I'm having a really hard time. That drowning, with the kid, that peed drowning we had last week, it's really messing me up. And the fatality fire today, I, don't, I just don't know if I can handle this. Not every company officer is prepared for that talk in the captain's office. And I think that is a, it's a shame. It really sucks. It's shortcoming of the of our uh, of, uh, of the system. Yeah, our training and system and preparation. Uh, that and it's a it's a it's a product of our culture too, because we're right now at a turning point between. You know, the the days of going into a fire without a SCBA on, are not that. You know, we're not that far past that. That was de- just decades. Yeah, if you ago, look at well, yeah, right? if you look at evolutionary time, yeah, we're it was, yeah. It was two seconds ago. Right. Overall, <laughs> yeah. man, that's all I've ever known. Until yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, we're we're developing at a at an amazing rate. Um, in some ways, you know, even just, <laughs> I was say, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. We're definitely degrading in others. Yeah. <laughs> when when you look at you know when you look at and we're in a really cool place here in the valley because we got the automatic aid system. We've got our dispatch system. All these things work so well together. You know, this is, <laughs> you don't get this in, in a whole lot of places in the U.S. So from a fire standpoint, even from an EMS standpoint, doing great. But from a psychiatric care wellness standpoint, the training wheels are still on, mm-hmm. Right. So what I'm going to say now is going to meet with some dissent, I'm sure. But we like to be controversial here. That's okay. Yeah. Please, yeah. And I'm not going to. I'm not going to go way out, out of bounds here. But feel, feel free. <laughs> departments, um, departments are tasking firefighters with providing peer support within the department for for psychiatric issues. And I think that that's a pretty big mistake. Now, in having what, said in that, what manner? The, okay, so peer support teams traditionally are uh, staffed with volunteers that come forward and say, hey, I want to be a part of the peer support team. Yep. They go to training, mm-hmm. they get peer support training, and then they come back and they will show up at a station after that bad call, after that fatality fire, after that pee's drowning, and they will do either a, something called a hot wash or a defusing or a debrief, whatever that department calls it. Mm-hmm. It's some form of contact between firefighters. And I think that that, that was born from a general distrust on the part of firefighters with psychiatric caregivers anybody other, gonna, anybody other than a firefighter right if you're really? not a firefighter i want to talk to you yeah um so so the response was okay then we're gonna have to talk to firefighters here's the problem you run that bad call company officer keeps the truck out of service 
battalion chief might come to the station. You got a meeting with eight or 10 people there. You chat a little bit about the call, how it went. Hopefully they tell you what good things happened at the call and don't say anything bad. And then that's it. And the, the officer tells the engineer, hey, go hit AOR, put us available. And then 10 minutes later, you're running, you're, you're running calls again. I think sometimes I think it's getting a little better. Like I don't know how much, but it's getting like yeah. I can like, only speak internally of some of the things that we do, and I feel like we're learning. Uh, but but here's the we're not we're not much beyond the tra- yeah. If we're, if sure. we're past bit training bit. wheels, we're not much past training. What about a tricycle? Here's the rest uh, of that. Yeah, you might. <laughs> here's the rest of that. You go back in service. You run the you run some more calls. You may or may they may or may not be difficult or challenging but you never get follow-up care through EAP or talk to anybody mm-hmm. after that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you got this, you've got this brick of C4 explosive and you pull, the, you pull the detonator out, but it's still there. It's still explosive. Yeah. And guess what? The next time you run you know, a stack of bad calls, there's another brick of C4 right there with a cap in it. Okay. Then you pull that cap out. Well, eventually the cap doesn't come out, and instead of just having a small explosion, you've got all of that cumulative stuff that comes to the surface. So that was me. Mm-hmm. What triggered me was just the little blasting cap. It was a little pop. But what it was sitting in was a massive pile of Good C4 shame. that piled up over 27 years. Mm-hmm. So... Knowing that the center, the IFF Center of Excellence is available is a huge step forward. But there's only one of those right now. Another one's being slated to be built on the West Coast. But what we need is a, about a dozen of those. Yeah, right. You know? So I think that... Yeah, can it keep up with demand? Well, that's the point. So when I got there... They were able to get me right in. I think some of that had to do with the situation. Yeah, you're the highest priority, right? Yeah. yeah. But when I left, there was a there was a like a three week waiting list. Oh. So last I checked, and I have a buddy that's going that's on the road there right now. Wow. Um, they were running like four or five days out. Hmm. So they're, they're but with COVID, that kind of yeah, that that's got to that, be a that whole throws different things off. Yeah, sure. somewhat. Yeah. But yeah, there's um, there's a massive need for this. But I think the the thing that haunts me is that most guys don't realize that there's this need. Uh, yeah, and, and and I'll say I'll be guilty of it because I didn't I didn't know the needs that big. Like I know yeah. that it's needed, but like the to the extent I'm like I don't. Hey man, I I've. I've been pretty rock hard. Yeah, like for sure. Absolutely. I've run a I've run a lot of calls. I've done a lot of just am, amazingly shitty stuff. Yeah. I've and I've saved a hell of a lot of lives with the help of some very talented people that I've worked with through my life. And I had no idea that I would ever say that I had PTSD. Right. But now I say it freely. Um. And I think that what it's going to take is somebody with 27 years Mm -hmm. on 
to stand in front of every academy class and say, hey, guys. Yeah. When I was sitting in your shoes, I had pretty much all the same thoughts. God, I want a working fire so bad. If I could just pull somebody out. Nothing can hurt me. Yeah. Yeah. Man, I want to... I want to. I want to work a code. I want to do an extrication, really gnarly, like on the, out on the freeway. You want that, you you, but, but you're not wanting it because you want to see people hurt. You're wanting it because you want to practice your craft. Yeah, you want to. You want to test your skills. You want to help. You yeah. want to. Yeah, you want it's to make so it better. It's so cliche, but when. Picture an ore board sitting there, and there, you know, there's there's some kid interviewing, and they say, "Why do you want to be a firefighter?" I want to help people. That's, you know, that's like always the answer. Um. Yeah, I feel like I got to get in front of some academy classes, and and tell them, "Hey, I'm not telling you that you are going to wind up where I wound up." It's my hope that you use resources that are available to you between now and the end of your career that prevent that from ever entering your mind. So the, the biggest step toward that for me is getting my own shit together, right? So It's a daily battle for what's, everybody, Yeah, right? what's, what's well, the measure of that? So yeah. I go to therapy twice a week, sometimes three. Um, did they and think this was a good idea? To go to back come and, come and, and talk deliver to the message? Come and talk to these It can never be a good oh. idea to talk to us. Yes. <laughs> well, man, yeah, I'm curious. For sure. Yeah. They, they wanted to be sure that I felt like I was in a safe place to do it. Right, right. Mentally. Right, yeah. For and, I, and I am. Good. Um, but I really... I, and I'm close to, to the point where I could get up in front of a, an audience, right? A, like a large audience, yeah. yeah. And tell tell my story, man. I'm so, um, yeah. The key is, I think, having somebody that's gone through it, somebody with a lot of years on that has experience and cre- sure. credibility. To move forward and and deliver the message, mm-hmm. but I'll tell you what. Unless I can point these people to to a good resource, what's the what's the point, right? So well, if I go if I go talk to Phoenix, I know that you guys have the resources available. If I go talk to Scottsdale Academy, I know they have the resources available. But if I were to travel to you know. Somewhere, some small department, because they they heard about my story right. and want me to want me to appear. I hope that they they will have something that I can deliver, something that I can advertise or advocate for. Yeah, just the level, just awareness. Sometimes is a good thing. Is the know, IA, just, how does the IAFF play into that? Because I, I do see even departments that are uh, smaller. Maybe lack resources. Maybe are in a in a maybe even a mental health kind of island or, or isolated from like real mental health professionals. Yeah. Just just geographically, right? Um, they're they're mostly always connected to the IAFF in some way. Yeah, and it's 
quite possible that this that the center of excellence is their only resource. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's that's it. That's the only. And step. I'll tell you what, most of the that's interesting that you bring that up, Chris, because most of the people at the center that I talked to were from small departments. Mm. Um, well, just 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 the fact that someone's willing to have a conversation, just like Dan coming in here and you know talking about that stuff, like just to take the stigma off of speaking up or because because I'm not I'm not trust me I'm not qualified in any of this arena but even if they if if their department doesn't have it you're you you coming on here today might be the lifeline for me just to talk to a friend and say hey man I'm fucked up dude like even if even if that stuff isn't there like I need some help and that yeah. might that might branch off to whatever else it becomes it's just the yeah and that's what I meant when I mentioned the culture yeah you know we uh so I, I used to live about an hour from my station. So I would ride to work every yeah. shift. And I thought about my mental preparation as the cape. So in the morning when I'd leave and go, go to work, I'd put the cape on mentally. I call it a costume. I, yeah, I call it, yeah, exactly. I call it, put it on my, my yeah. different costume today. Yeah. Um, yeah, I always called, my, called our uh, turnout gear the costume. Did you guys have anything last shift? No, we put our costume on three times. We yeah, didn't do anything. That's it. Um, and during that one-hour ride home, I would take the cape off mm-hmm. because I knew that the that facade that you put on, that armor that you put on as a firefighter, does not play well with home. Mm-mm. So, in other words, if you if you act like a badass firefighter, unless you're involved with a, a partner that really just likes badass firefighters, um, yeah. eventually that that type of an attitude and, and mentality will drive everybody in your life away. I just yeah. act like a buffoon. Yeah, you have to be a human. Yeah, you have to be a human at home. And that will help you in turn be a better firefighter. It will help you be a more compassionate medic mm-hmm. or EMT. When you, you have to take the cape off, you have to have time away from what we do. Mm-hmm. It's just too much to mm-hmm. bear. That's why we have days off. So it's a complex issue for sure. <laughs> say the least. Um, but I will say that, that we're definitely evolving we're we're trying slow the the peer support yeah. thing, you know the resources that that have been even just since my thing in September that that have been made available um, in Scottsdale have, have been an improvement. How long has it been since since uh, since that day? Uh, it was September, so so it's a, it's September months. 2019. Yeah, it's yeah, been 19. eight months. If um and. Is there anything because you said you didn't get to talk to everybody that that, that ran on you? Um, do you want to say something to them? Yeah, I do, and it's hard. I'm sure. I'm uh, sure it is, man. <laughs> and and don't don't feel obligated to say it today. Yeah. yeah it, so, if yeah, this it, is, no, if this is an opportunity yeah, to take it, it, and if not, sure. don't worry yeah. about it. If not, just save it for another yeah. day. Um, let's put it this way: I have a lot of people to thank in person. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's the best way to do it. Mm-hmm. You know. Probably three, four months ago, I was driving to the grocery store and I saw my truck. Mm-hmm. And they were sitting at a, at a light 
they had their windows down and it was nice right yeah and i was in the three or four months like ago was. early yeah. afternoon <laughs> you know it's like 70 degrees out guys have the windows down and the guy in the back seat had his had his turnout coat on and his hood and i thought oh man they're coming back from something and i just started crying it's so, not easy man yeah no i i wanted to I wanted to be with them. You're not doing an easy thing, for sure. Well, I'll tell you this. I believe what you're doing now is what you did on the job. Is you, you did the Yeah, I'm trying to, right? Yeah, you're, I, I, totally, I, I see it. You're trying to do the, the difficult things. This is, this, is the, this is the next difficult call, so to speak. Yeah. And um, with uh, that doesn't have like super definitive tools. I, I, it does, I think, in the in the science of it and all that. Yeah. But they're not ones that we're we're super adept at using. No, definitely not. And, uh, and so and that's the culture thing. Yeah. And it it sounds insensitive, but as firefighters retire and we're replaced with a new generation we're we're cha- that culture is changing mm-hmm. just the same way the very first academy that went through where they told them you will wear an air pack in every fire from now on just the way that change happened in the fire service this this is going to change too mm-hmm. the the wreckage is the guys kind of of my era that are waiting to retire. And in Scottsdale, you have to realize there's a certain, that's me. Yeah. There's a special circumstance in Scottsdale. You got guys that worked for rural Metro. I did, I did 10 years. I worked a decade with rural Metro before Scottsdale took over as a municipal department. And guess what? My time in the, in the pension didn't start until I put a Scottsdale shirt on. There were guys that were ready to retire when, Yes. The Scottsdale Fire Department was formed, right? Very much so. And could not. Yeah. Dart. Dart was one of them. Yeah, we just sucked. <laughs> yeah. Dart was one of them. So, guys. yeah, you've got, you've got guys. My old captain did over 40 years oh, before man. he retired. That's crazy. And he was only able to retire because he had age plus years oh, of service. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. Not because he made it to 20 with, with the pension. So, sure. yeah, there are. There are a lot of guys that, that are doing well over 25, yeah. 30 years yeah. before they can retire. And I still haven't quite come to peace with, with telling people I'm retired. Like, hey, you know, if I meet somebody or whatever, hey, so what do you do? I'm retired. They kind of, really, you're kind of young. Because I'm what are, awesome. What'd you do? <laughs> well, I, I was a firefighter for 27 years. And then they kind of go, when did you start? Like, I was 20 years old. Yeah. Yep. And I, I go, wow, that's a long time to be a firefighter. And I said, yeah, it's too long. Yeah, I promise <laughs> you it's a long time. It's too long. And guys have to do 25 years now to to get to the pension. Mm-hmm. And Yeah, I'm planning on leaving right at 20. 
you know, yeah. and, I've, and, I've, and I've set myself up that way just to leave. I mean, it's 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 a job. It's not who I am. It's what I do. There's other things out there. And there is, for me, There, I, I've always known, I mean, it's because I, I did other things before showing up uh, to the fire service. So there's, there's, there's an expiration date on us. Yeah. And some of us come sooner, some of us come later. But yeah. there, you know, there is an expiration date for sure. But it is who you are. It's part of who no I am. No matter how much, yeah. No matter how much you, yeah, you know, part of who I am. For say, sure. yeah. People won't. People want to say, oh, that's just what I do." But yeah. it's it's who you are, and the the good parts of it. Believe me, just like you said, your clients tell you that you you have a positive impact. Yeah. You know, your upbringing and your entire life before the fire service has an impact on that. Absolutely. But that mentality as a firefighter of helping and do whatever it takes to protect life and property yeah. is what shapes who we are. So again, it's what you're doing right now. Yeah. And when I saw 603 driving with the windows down and I wanted to get back on that truck, that reflects the fact that that will always be a part of who I am. Mm-hmm. We're inherently service-driven people. Yeah. And like me, like I was a service-driven person before I got to the fire department, I'll always be that way, even after I leave it. Like I want to leave whatever, whether it be, you know, road racing on a, on a, on a, on a uh, road bike or uh, racing on a street bike. Wherever you show up, you want to leave it better than you found it, right? For sure. And that's and you'll never take that away from us. That's who we are. Yeah. Yeah. No matter what well, job we're doing, it's going to be there. And and so the technicality of your retirement, uh, has, uh, you're still doing it. This yeah. conversation, that's your presence, a, your communication, what you're going to do yeah. you. You're going to continue doing that um, uh, in a in a <laughs> actually probably a better way. It's a, yeah. and it, you have a different customer set now. Rather than the yeah. community, you've got the people that were actually delivering the service. Yeah. Yeah, I, like back to that, what we talked about, like I'm a big fan of what the Greeks do, right? The, you, you live many lives within this one. It's just your next life. Yeah. Literally, right? Yeah, yeah. for sure. <laughs> Literally. Uh, yeah. It's you just know, your next life. That was, there were actually a couple guys at the center that called me nine lives. Yeah, for sure. Right? <laughs> yeah, I, you and my mom. I'm glad they act like firemen there. Even yeah. there, they act like yeah, firemen. They that do. makes me happy. You know, when I told my story and... and uh, the different close calls that I've had and, you know, how I've been banged up here and there. And then, you know, September and then plus going to the hospital when I got there. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I had something that killed one of our fire captains that was a very good friend of mine, but I made it. Um, Alligator's blood. Something. (laughs) Can't kill you. Or, or you're truly a cockroach. One or the other. (laughs) Can't kill you. Yeah. Can't get away with it. Well, you have anything that you want to close with? I think we're close to three hours at this point. Yeah. Holy oh, cow. Yeah. Believe flies believe by, right? Yeah. 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 You guys are going to have to split the episode. Oh, no. Yeah, oh, no. Yeah. Really? really? There's no editing, okay. dude. Yeah. We don't. Awesome. Our only rule is we'll edit something if it's going to fuck up your home life. That is, yeah. And, <laughs> and we haven't had to do it yet. Yeah. So. Uh, like a bad story about an ex-girlfriend or something. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> but your wife doesn't want to hear. Yeah. Something like that. It, so. I'm telling you those. Everybody, um, everybody gets it. Or, or These get turned out the way they happen. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Right, Chris? This is just, yeah. No. yeah. Yeah, we've never edited anything. He's the guy in charge of all that. And, all right. Yeah. Well, then it's not authentic, right? 
And True. If, and if it's one thing that, that Chris and I 100% always want to be is authentic. Yeah. You can call it stupid, but yeah. not authentic. <laughs> Positively or negatively, it will be authentic. Right. So I always, I always did best in interviews when I did not plan a closing statement. Okay. So I haven't planned one well, for good. this. Okay. <laughs> but yeah. what I will say is um, whether you're a firefighter or not, if you're going, if you're going through a hard time in your life and you feel like you would be better off not around anymore, you got to realize that, that that is not the case, that there, there are people that care about you, whether you realize it or not, whether you admit it or not, there are people that your loss would affect deeper than, than you probably realize. And if you're having thoughts that are clouding your judgment, you're having thoughts that, that you would be better off not around, I should serve as some kind of proof to you that, that there is hope. You're definitely not alone. And the help is there for the taking. If you're a firefighter, man, I, I believe in your ability to, to come help me and my family, but I also believe in your ability to use your resources to help yourself because that's what comes first. You know, they taught us in the academy um, that you'll risk a lot to save a lot and it may feel risky to come forward and talk about what you're thinking or what you're feeling but I promise you that it's worth it. Well said. I'll let Chris Stewart close us out, but I just want to say thanks, man, um, for coming in here. Thanks for trusting us. Um, it takes a grown-ass man to come out here and put all this shit out there for the whole fucking world to hear. I know it's not easy. I know it's uncomfortable. It's not fun at times, but um, what we do appreciate it. It's uh, people like you that are, that are courageous and strong enough to come in here. Um, that'll help make that change start to happen quicker than, than uh, after uh, Dan Grover came in here. We got several, several, several texts and messages about how how it's okay to be vulnerable. Like yours, your you, your message will continue uh, to allow people to be vulnerable and to actually seek the help and get the help. And like I said, I'm, it, the, today was the first day you know that I got to meet you. I'm glad that you walked in here. Like I'm glad that you came across my path. I'm sure this won't be the last time we ever have a conversation because now, unfortunately for you, when I, when when someone comes to me that I that, that is going through a similar situation, you're the fucker that's going to get the phone call. Right. So. Yeah, and, and uh, really, yeah. If, if anybody uh, feels like they they want to contact me personally, they can they can go to you guys and and uh, Facebook, Instagram. They can yeah, get you, there. Facebook is probably the, the easiest, just kind of public way to to get a hold of me. Rick Booker on Facebook. Spell your last name because it does. Uh, yeah, it does yeah. like it's, it's a, not the yeah. common spell. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's spelled B U C H E R. Okay. Wrap it up. All right. Yeah. So I, I, I will. I'll I'll echo Brandon's sentiment. Is is thank you. Um, I don't. I don't know actually how how difficult and how the, the effort it actually takes to do what you're doing um I, i'm doing my best to guess and understand but i don't and I, I but i'm impressed and i admire it and uh and so thank you number one for telling your story uh thank you for your career and um and thank you for the effort that you're 
that you're you're exuding right now and you're you're getting ready to put forth in trying to help a lot of other people deal with firefighters specifically deal with some incredible things some some real heavy serious strong gravity type things and uh so yeah it is a big deal and and you are kind of the you're the perfect person to do it because you're gonna do this just like you did all the other things you've done in your career and that's i if i guess if we're gonna pick somebody <laughs> you're I mean, you're the perfect you, you selected you selected into this position which is pretty fantastic and i'm and i'm glad uh i'm i'm thrilled that the circumstances worked in that in that manner um so and yeah thanks for trusting us to come in here because uh yeah you 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 uh, you agreed to this on somebody else's word of us and that that means a lot so we appreciate that shoemaker poor poor that guy does yeah. not pick character yeah. at all. <laughs> He's terrible with his picking friends. Um, but uh, yeah, so thanks. Um, if uh, you know in the future you see like there, there's something you've got something on your mind that you really want to talk to, man, give us a shout. This is that's what this venue is for. And awesome. We'll, 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 yeah, we'll be there. We want to we want to keep doing things that, interestingly enough, the make the difference uh, mean something to us. So uh, that's what we're gonna. Which we'll push for. So I, I greatly appreciate it, man. Thank you very much. Keep going. If we can support you, we will. We'll be there to support you. Awesome. I appreciate it. Thanks yeah. so much for having me. For sure. All right, everybody. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook. You can find us on uh, Libsyn. Anywhere we can download a podcast uh, on Instagram and Facebook. We are at Make the Difference podcast um please leave reviews apple reviews are the best uh give us your feedback we've taken a little bit of a break uh that's a lot of shit going on lately we're gonna get these things ramped up back again um every couple weeks so but uh once again rick thanks man you're doing uh doing doing good stuff and we'll talk to you guys soon